Bye. Hello. We have waves. We are good. Yep. Hi, Nick. Oh, shoot. I forgot to hit the record button. I'm so sorry. (laughs) 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 I I just hit it, though. So I'm recording now. You're not professional like we are. Nope. Such a dingus. All right. (laughs) Off to a great start. (laughs) So, yeah, Nick is talking near with Rich and I today. And thanks again for coming on again, Nick. Thanks for having me. It's always awesome to have you on. It's always awesome to be on. Richie, can you tell everyone what we're talking about today? That's a very good question. Because <laughs> um, you wanted to talk about Nia, mm-hmm. but you've only played Nier Automata. So you wanted right. to talk about like the whole Nier series, which is itself kind of a minefield. Mm. Because as we were discussing, there's like there's stuff in Nier that relates to another series called Drakengard. And there's stuff in Nier Automata that calls back to Nier. But also, I think those three things stand perfectly fine on their own. And, like, the connections between Drakengard and Nia are, like, it's basically an Easter egg. It's not, like, a super important detail. And, um, yeah. And I, I would actually go as far as to say that I think Nier Automata works better as a standalone story. Than it does as the sequel to Nia, because there's a lot of stuff in Automata that it was in in the original Nia, and I think if you don't know the backstory behind it, you get a different impression of it that I think is more interesting than if you just like know what it is. And if you've played through Nier, you know to call into question certain aspects of the basic premise of Nier Automata because they don't jive with what happened. Yeah, like the the, the bit about humans going to the moon—that's inconsistent with what happens in the original Nier. <laughs> Mm. Mm -hmm. We should point out as well that, like, Nier Automata is, like, it's the sequel to Nier, but it is, like, what, 5,000 years in the future, almost? uh, At least. Something in that vicinity. Yeah, it's, it's like, a very, 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 like, it's not, like, the next day. No. So, so much can have changed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, what was the first game in this series of games that somehow relates to Nier Automata, whether it's an Easter egg or not? In terms of narrative chronological order, it's Drakengard 3, which is a prequel to Drakengard 1 that didn't quite fit together perfectly with Drakengard 1, so they had to retcon it a little bit in the manga, but that's just a taste of how convoluted this universe is. What? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And how how is that connected to Nier Automata? Well, basically, uh, Drakengard... Three and then Drakengard one lead up to kind of the pivotal the, the pivotal event that causes the white chlorination syndrome that wipes everybody out in near, which sort of then sets the stage for near automata to occur way in the future. Richie, um, yeah, what what he said. Okay. Um, basically, <laughs> basically, what happens is that at the one of the endings of Drakengard three, to how many endings does that yeah, thing it, have? Is it just no, Drakengard 3 has four. Drakengard yeah. 1 has five or four six. Ending. Yeah. Okay. They- okay, well, that, that's that's um, actually quite restrained compared to what we're going to see Because later Nier Automata on. has 26. Um, <laughs> yes. Um, one, of, one of the endings of Drakengard 3, a, a dragon thing appears in the real world. Like, that's as much as you need to know, basically. A dragon thing shows up from the Drakengard universe into, the, into our universe. And 
that um that is the beginning of like that's sort of the the um impetus behind what becomes the plot of Nia. But again, it's not it's not super important that you know that. Basically, like Nia begins with this like horrible uh, disaster called it's called like white white chlor white chlorination poisoning or something. Are we talking Has, about uh, neurotomata? No, 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 no. This is the thing. This this is why I said it. What like, this is going to be a mess. Oh, well, um, I mean- basically, the yeah the the starting point of the original Nia is there's a thing called white chlorination poisoning that is like this sort of world ending event that kicks off the story. If you go deep into like what is going on in the original Nia, the explanation behind white chlorination poisoning is basically it's the end it's what happens after ending four of Dragon Guard Three. Okay, Richie, but I'm gonna you interrupt you yep. for a second. You keep saying yep. the original Nia, is that Nier Gestalt? Yes. Or no, Nier Nier okay. Well, oh, it, God. Can you just tell me <laughs> what <laughs> the Nears are? Well, here's the thing. Like Nier Ge- <laughs> there are basically when we say Nier, it's sort of a composite reference to yeah. two games, Nier Gestalt and Nier Replicant. They're basically the same okay. game. The only difference is in one, Nier is an older man looking after his daughter. In the other, Nier is a younger man looking after his sister. The, re- the, oh! the relationship between those two is the only difference. Otherwise they're identical in terms of gameplay and story. Yeah, my boyfriend told me about the game where in one of them he's like hunky and in another one he's not. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, well, even, even the old man I, is. I think he's hunky yeah, in both of them. Even the old man has. <laughs> you think he's hunky yeah. in both of them? He's got gas coin energy. <laughs> he does. <laughs> well, I should play it now. <laughs> he kind of looks like gas coin without the beard, too, but that's another matter. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I, you know what? It, I, I could probably just kind of run through Drakengard kind of quick just to set the stage, and then we can spend more time on Nier, okay. if that, okay, if that good, works. Good thinking. Yeah, yeah it works. Because yeah. chronologically, the first game is Drakengard 3, which is, again, the sort of imperfect prequel to Drakengard that they had to retcon a little bit to make fit with the original game, even after they made Drakengard 3, because Yoko Taro is clinically insane. <laughs> and that's that's sort of a, a premise. Yoko Taro is the director of the games we're talking about. And just to keep in mind the fact that he's clinically insane in the best possible way. To, to, <laughs> to kind of understand the way these games work. Nick, can he sue you for saying that? Well, I said in the best possible. It's a compliment to say that his highly eccentric style of tori- storytelling makes these games something <laughs> unique. That's what I mean. <laughs> and like, like we should point out that um, Yoko Taro is like, he started off, I think he was a playwright mm-hmm. to begin with. And then he... Um, he moved into video games. Matter of fact, there's on. a stage play prequel to Nier Automata. Yeah, that kind of tells some of the backstory of A2, which we can get to later. Um, but d- yeah. starting with Drakengard three, uh, there's this there's this fantasy world called Midgard in which most of the events take place. And Midgard came into Midgard. Yeah, Midgard. Isn't that like the Norse world? It is. It is. Yes. But they they went with that name for the fantasy setting of Drakengard for reasons that escape me. <laughs> they just, just can Thor sue them. For just using the name? Probably not. It's hard to trademark the name of a place. Uh, okay. Also, I, I imagine it's out of copyright. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, um, it, it, you, you, you can't copyright like the name of a place, and it's, it's not a trademark, I don't think, of you know, Norse mythology. So, okay. so Thor couldn't, unfortunately, sue. But he, he could just you know, beat him up with his hammer. So that's, that's a consolation prize. <laughs> then he'd commit battery, but who's going to sue the god of thunder? You know, <laughs> we talked about the problems with suing deities in, in the last podcast. That's true. <laughs> they don't have to show up to court. But um, in this world, way long time ago, an earthquake takes place on the Iberian Peninsula. And after this, all sorts of magical creatures appear. Magic itself was introduced into the world. A city appears out of nowhere called Cathedral City. And dragons appear and start waging war on humanity. Everything falls into chaos until these five beings called the Intoners appear and kind of set everything right. 
But before the intoners appear, because of the havoc and the chaos that the dragons create, the, na- the disparate nations of Europe come together and form this one nation called Midgard with the new city, which is called the Cathedral City, as its kind of capital. But it's a feudal system. So it's a system of disparate feudal lords, and they're oppressing and taking advantage of the people. Until these five, mm-hmm. quote, goddesses called the intoners come and kind of set things right. Uh, but during the feudal era, before the intoners show up, a young girl is sold into prostitution by her mother, and to escape prostitution, she turns to violence and theft. And she grows to hate the world, and so she keep, keeps stealing and killing until the world finally, you know, her goal is to keep stealing and killing until the world finally musters the wherewithal to stop her and put her down. Um, she has got a real violent disposition because of the things she's been through. Um, so she escapes prostitution, but she's eventually captured, imprisoned, and tortured along with, I think, five other girls. She's the last one to survive, but she's got a disease that's on the verge of killing her until a strange flower appears to her and gives her a, a new lease on life and gives her great supernatural power. And so this initially seems like a good thing for our young uh, heroine, whose name is Zero. She despises herself, so she calls herself Zero because she sees herself as less than nothing. Um, I'm not sure you ever learned her real name. So this flower seems like a good thing, but initially she comes to empathize with the flower, which has its own will, and she realizes that its only goal is to destroy humankind, and it needs a human host to do that. And so she tries to remove the flower from her body, and it paralyzes her and prevents her from doing it. She tries to kill herself to stop the flower, but it won't let her die. And out of resentment, it severs certain aspects of of her personality and of her powers and creates these five female beings called intoners. And these are the intoners who use the magical power of song to kind of end the feudal system and bring order to Midgard. Um, Mm -hmm. But these are just vessels for the flower to destroy the world. Zero knows this. And so at some point, Zero makes a pact with a dragon, because in this universe, humans can make pacts with creatures. And both will you know, have increased powers because of it, but usually it comes at a price to the human, but Zero doesn't seem to pay a price because she's not altogether human anymore, I guess, because of the influence of the flower. Um, matter of fact, the, the flower is the cause of the pack system, but we don't need to get into that. It's too granular for what we're doing. Um, and so Zero sets out to kill the five intoners, whom she refers to as her sisters, because they all came from the flower, which is part of her. Uh, she, she makes a pact with a dragon named Michael. They launch an attack against the cathedral city, and it ends in miserable defeat. Uh, because the, the five intoners are all named 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, quite creatively. <laughs> <laughs> 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. And of course, Zero, their mother slash sister, is, is named Zero. Which I, the, the Japanese have this thing where Zero is preeminent over 1, I think. So it's like Zero is like the first, and then yeah. 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. You mm. know? So if you're counting, you'd start with zero instead of one in, in a lot of contexts okay. in the Japanese. But anyway, mm-hmm. so zero came first and one, two, three, four, five. One is kind of the leader of the five intoners. And she has her own dragon named Gabriel, who is kind of a beast, and he kills Michael. And nearly Oh, it's like the angels. Gabriel, yeah. Michael. Yeah, these dragons are named after angels. As a matter of fact, in Drakengard, the dragon's name is Angelus, which literally translates to angel from, from Latin. Uh-huh. So it's a thing. Um, and of course, angels are a separate species of creature in Drakengard. They're, they're basically some in this game. They're basically summon monsters. Mm-hmm. You can summon them. They play a bigger role in Drakengard. Uh, but the the five intoners, each one has a disciple. Um, so each one has a disciple, except for one who doesn't appear to have one. But she has a big dragon, so it's okay. And her dragon comes and kills Michael. Uh, 
critically wounds Zero, but Zero escapes. But Michael reincarnates in the form of this other dragon called Mikhail, who's kind of a young, naive, kind of clumsy personality that Zero kind of resents and despises, but she nevertheless stays with him. So she's pretty, she's pretty down after her defeat, and she stays holed up for about a year, and then she decides to set out to kill her sisters. Um, which she does one by one, and takes their, dis- it takes their disciples as she kills them. Um, and eventually, just to kind of back up, the, the only way to kill an intoner or anyone touched by the flower is with, with the dragon. Like, the dragons and the, fl- and the flower are naturally antagonistic to each other, because only the dragons can destroy the flower. So Zero is running around killing her sisters with a sword made of dragon bone, under the theory that that will kill them, because they've been touched by the flower. Of course, that could kill her, too, because she's also an intoner, basically, um, because of the flower's influence. So she cuts her way through her sisters and takes their disciples and eventually confronts one. And in ending A, uh, there's a big battle between Michael and Gabriel and Zero and One, and it eventually ends that One is killed and Zero is ready to die, because the nature of Zero's pact with Michael was that after all the sisters were dead, Michael would kill her. And Mikhail sort of inherited that pact, because Mikhail is Michael reincarnated, basically. Uh, but without mm-hmm. Michael's memories. Like, dragons can reincarnate when they, when they die, but when they do, they lose all their memories, so they're effectively a different personality. Um, but as mm-hmm. the game progresses, you see Michael sort of coming out. Uh, and, you know, Mikhail matures and becomes more like Michael. So at the very end, after everybody's dead, uh, including, actually, Mikhail, because he has to sacrifice himself to kill Gabriel, um, Zero is mysteriously stabbed in the back by this young boy who looks just like one. And we'll call him Brother One, because he's essentially a clone of one, made from one's rib, kind of paralleling the Adam and Eve story, uh, which is another theme in Nier Ultimata. So she's stabbed in the back and killed with a dragon bone sword by this guy named Brother One. Uh, and that's basically the ending of Route A. B and C don't matter. Um, the real important one is Route D, uh, which has a different series of events leading up to the final confrontation, but it kind of turns out the same way. The, all the intoners are dead. Um, but this time, Mikhail survives. He doesn't have to sacrifice himself. And Zero is at a point where the flower is taking over. And it eventually sprouts into this huge flower that covers you know, multiple city blocks. And out of each petal, a representation of one of the intoners sprouts up. And at the center, a representation of Zero sprouts up. And Mikhail's job is to destroy the big flower once and for all. And the, bo- and the boss fight is basically Guitar Hero. <laughs> it's, a, it's a rhythm game. <laughs> it's, it's a, it's, if you play Guitar Hero, you know exactly it works. It, not visually, but mechanically, it works just like Guitar Hero. The big flower is singing mm-hmm. a song, and you have to hit the right buttons at the right times to produce musical notes to counteract that. And then once you do that, the the massive flower basically disintegrates. And this android called Accord, who's been kind of watching everything, um, she states that the flowers, the power of the flower, is not destroyed, but it's contained in another dimension. And it may resurface mm-hmm. one day. And that sort of sets the stage for Drakengard 1. I think uh, Drakengard 1 really follows ending D, which we just discussed. But I mentioned ending A because it's the only one in which you see Brother 1, the male clone of 1. And the reason I mention him is because he starts the Church of the Watchers, which is relevant to the story of Drakengard. Um, make sense so far? Yep. Oh yeah, perfect in, sense. In, in, in as much as uh, Yohotaro works. <laughs> yeah, it's it sounds like a very dark and twisted game. Oh, it is. And well, like, well yeah. in, in Drakengard, you've got a protagonist who's a homicidal maniac. You've got him having implicitly having incense with his sister. He teams up with a pedophile and a cannibal and a young boy. 
<laughs> okay, the, I, I think like to um to clarify like what's kind of going on here. Yeah, the idea be- that Taro was getting at with Dragon Guard is in video games you play as a character who like they can't ever really be a good person because they murder so many people throughout the course of the game. Right. Mm-hmm. So what he's trying to get at in Dragon Guard is okay, like the only people who could really be, like, a typical action game protagonist in real life would be, like, the most, like, revolting people alive. That's right. So they're all just, like, psychopaths and pedophiles and things. Because most games gloss Uh over the fact that you are killing legions of people to achieve your goals. Yeah. You know. And Yoko Taro's like, well, I want you to acknowledge what you're doing. (laughs) You know? <laughs> so he, it, it, it's not total lunacy. There's a method to it, and it, plus he he was rebelling against a lot of the common tropes of the day, like the damsel in distress trope and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, he was sick of seeing a lot of the same narrative devices used over and over, naively glossed over. So he wanted to kind of make you confront these things and kind mm-hmm. of rebel against those. So I mean, there were legitimate reasons for some of the decisions that he made. It's just I thought it was a way to kind of grab people's attention, talking about homicidal maniacs and pedophiles and cannibals, all of which are present in in Drakengard. Um, mm-hmm. So all this kind of sets the stage for Drakengard 1. We, we, we refer to these beings called angels, which in Drakengard 3 are basically summon monsters, but they play a more active role in Drakengard. Because um, essentially they are instruments of the gods created to destroy humanity, and that's what they're trying to do. But somewhere along the way, the Church of the Watchers, also known as the Church of the Angels, initially established by Brother 1, uh, created these four seals that sort of keep the Watchers at bay. But if the seals are ever broken, then these things called the Seeds of Resurrection, also known as the Seeds of Destruction, will manifest in the world, and the Watchers will also be able to enter the world uninhibited. And that will set in motion multiple alternative ways for humanity to be destroyed. Because <laughs> <You know? laughs> one way for humanity to be destroyed would be for any human to enter one of the seeds and emerge as this superpower being who can reproduce at a geometric rate and destroy the human race. Another way is for the Watchers to come in along with their mother goddess, the Queen Beast, and destroy the world that way. So if the seals are broken, multiple alternative events, chains of events, will set into motion, one of which will inevitably result in humankind's destruction. <laughs> you know? Huh. So yeah. it's because the, I think the gods have decided that humankind is a failed experiment and want to wipe us out. Uh, that's basically it. And that, that was, I think, that's, I think, the flower's purpose as well. But the flower failed in Drakengard 3, but we'll see that the flower makes a return, I think, in Drakengard. So we, we start off with our protagonist, Kaim. The, the, Midgard is basically broken off into two factions, the Empire and the Union, and they're at war with each other. The Empire is run by the Church of the Watchers. Now, initially, the Church of the Watchers are the ones who put the seal in place to keep the Watchers back and keep the Seeds of Resurrection back. But they have had a change of heart. The Watchers have come to influence the leader of the Church of the Watchers, who is a direct descendant of Brother One, and she is a child. Her name is Mana. You know, just it's pronounced just like Secret of Mana. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you find out later that she's actually possessed by a Watcher. And so the Watchers now have basically taken control of the Church and the Empire. And so now the Church's goal is to destroy the very seals that they created to keep the Watchers and the Seeds at bay. And so the Empire is waging war to that end. And three of the seals are just these places that have been imbued with a magical seal. But the fourth seal is a person called the Goddess of the Seal. And that person, I guess, changes every so often. And in this game, it so happens that the goddess of the seal is a person called Furia, who is the sister of our protagonist, Kaim. And so when it starts off, the union, the right of the Empire, is attacking the castle where F- Furia is holed up. And Kaim is hacking and slashing his way 
to reach her. And so, you know, you're Kaim and you're fighting and you're this superhuman soldier. You're just killing, you know, guys left and right, even though you've been, quote unquote, mortally wounded. It doesn't seem to hold you back, really. <laughs> so after you suffer this mortal wound, you kill hundreds of dudes to get to this dragon who's chained and nailed to the floor. You make a pact with her. And one function of the pact is that if you're near death, you get a new lease on life. Both the beast and the human get enhanced capabilities, but the human has to pay a price. And Kaim's price is he can't speak anymore after the pact is made. He gets this really wicked tattoo on his tongue to reflect that his tongue is under seal now and he can't speak. So most of the game, you're playing with the silent protagonist. Although in ending C, the pact is broken and he can speak. And you think he's going to say this really profound thing, but it's basically, I am Kaim! (laughs) (laughs) Like, I am grouped! It's like, okay, this is what my protagonist has to say after being silent for the whole game. But anyway, that's ending C. (laughs) Ending C is not relevant, as Richard pointed out earlier. Uh, It's basically ending E we're concerned about. Yeah. Um, But yeah, so you you hack and slash your way to the dragon. You make a pact with the dragon. And that sets the stage for some really spectacular aerial battles, which are probably the highlight of the game in terms of gameplay. The ground combat's pretty monotonous. You hit square, and you hit square some more. And you hit square some more, and, and every now and again you cast a spell, and yeah, you hit it, square it some plays more. a lot like the Warriors games, but kind of jankier. Yeah, yeah exactly. The yeah. gameplay is a bit clunky and repetitive, but the story is compelling. Yeah, which is a recurring thing until we get to Automata. Yeah, the, yeah. the gameplay in all the games kind of suffers a bit until Automata, where the combat finally feels good. The gameplay is finally a good experience. Yeah. But, uh, Nier is kind of a step above Drakengar, but yeah. that's not saying a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's like going from like a, a, a D to a C plus or something. Whereas I'd give Nier Automata an A because the gameplay is just spectacular. But anyway, um, kind of getting back to Drakengard. So we, we make our way to Furia, and she's there with a man called uh, Inuwat. Inuwat is kind of a bard. He's really good at playing songs and singing, but he's weak in terms of combat. And he hates this about himself. Because Kaim is this, you know, super-powered soldier who can cut through hundreds of men with a mortal wound and not even think about it. Uh, whereas all Inuwat can do is sit there and play songs. He's like, I wish I had the strength. I wish I had the strength. All I can do is play these freaking songs. Um, so that's kind of a recurring theme, you know. You know what? Upcoming antagonist alert, by the way. (laughs) Because of his inferiority complex over his weakness. And so, you know, you get to the castle. And you get to Furia. And Induat thinks it'd be a good idea to go to this elf village. Because the castle isn't safe any longer. So you murder your way to the elf village and find that the elf village has been sacked and burned. And that's where Induat laments that he's not strong. And Furia says, but your songs comfort me. And Aww. as it turns out, before Furia became the goddess of the seal, those two were engaged to be married. And so now that she's the goddess of the seal, they can't be married, but he still, you know, pines after her and stays by her side. Um, at this point, a, a person named Verdelay, who's kind of the head of the union, reaches out to Angelus and says, bring Furia to the desert because it's not safe anywhere anymore. So Indiwat and Furia head to the desert, but Kaim and Angelus gather intelligence that the Union is taking hostages to this other place somewhere off in the woods, so they murder their way there, only to find that there's no one there. So after this p- completely pointless excursion, we finally go to the, mm-hmm. to, to the desert to try to hook up with Furii and uh, what's-his-face? Inuwat. I keep saying what's-his-face, because he, he seems like an unimportant character initially, but there's a cool fight with him at the end. But anyway. 
Mm-hmm. So the the gang finds Inuit at the desert, but learns that Verdelay, again, the head of the Union, has been taking has been taken to an Empire prison, just like virtually every protagonist in the game eventually winds up in Empire custody at some point. So we go to that prison, we rescue Verdelay, but you know, Mario, your princess is in another castle. We find Inuits being held <laughs> elsewhere. Um, mm-hmm. He's being brainwashed by an evil Watcher with horrible voice acting. <laughs> it's like. <laughs> Because it, because the watcher will try to put words in your mind, and the voice acting sounds just like this, fury eye. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and this is the voice acting from the evil watcher spirit that you hear throughout the game, an Oscar-worthy performance. Well, listen, Richie and I have been watching a lot of bad um, movies. Yeah. So. This isn't the worst we've heard. <laughs> no, I guess not. I mean, that voice actor is capable of much better due to his other his other performance in animated shows. So he must have been mm-hmm. he must have been told to deliver the lines just that way. <laughs> it's ironic, you know. Yeah, well, that's, like, that's the explanation for Metroid Other M. Ah, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're, you're told to deliver. To deliver. <laughs> yeah, they they want apparently the director wanted her to sound like she'd been through a traumatic experience, which is totally. Counter to everything we had preconceived yeah. about Samus up to that point. Let's not go back there. It makes, <laughs> makes me sad. We'll just say other M. We should have an episode on other M. We did. Yeah. No, no, we had Metroidvania uh, episode. We didn't have other well, M. You'll, okay, episodes. you'll be happy to know that other M has an option called theater mode, where the game just shows you all the cutscenes in order and like. Are you serious? Yes, and then like, That's and, awesome. and it, it inserts little like gameplay footage in between them, so you can follow where you went. Yeah. So the game itself makes a lore video for you. Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. More games should do that. This is brilliant. <sighs> well, I mean, they, they they tried to humanize Samus, and they just bungled it up. I think you know. Yeah. Um. They they, they could have gone about it better. But we only have uh, a total of an hour to discuss this. So let's get back yep. on track, everyone. Yep. 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 And so. Yeah, we find Verdelay, we find out Inuit's being held elsewhere and being brainwashed by a watcher. Um, and eventually what happens is, as a result of the brainwashing, Inuit gives up his musical talent to make a pact with a black dragon. Which happens to be the same black dragon who killed our protagonist, Kaim's parents, way a long time ago. Which explains uh-huh. his hatred to the Empire. But anyway. Uh-huh. And along the way, one of the seals was broken, and soon another seal's going to be broken. But uh, before we get there, we have to talk about the cannibal elf. Um, she too is being held in an empire prison. She sends a telepathic me- message to Verdelay. So we we go we attack that prison, and the cannibal gets out, and she joins our party after she tries to eat Kaim. Uh, she attacks Kaim, tries to eat him, fails, but nevertheless Kaim agrees to take her into his service. And this woman is an elf. Her name is Ariok. And like I said, she's a cannibal. She likes to eat people. She particularly likes to eat children. <laughs> uh, so we we get nervous whenever she gets near any children. Yeah, and, and there, I can imagine. And there's a there's a scene in I don't think it's a DLC, but it's like one of the chapters where she and our pedophile Leonard are in a village full of children, and she's eating them all, and Leonard is quite distressed by this. Yeah, along the way, and before that is when we meet Leonard, and he's mourning the destruction of his village, uh, and you come to mm-hmm. find out that he was off molesting children while his village was being sacked and burned. So, oh my god! <laughs> and he he. He made a pact. Initially, this fairy shows up and goads him into killing himself, but he refuses, and so she makes a pact with him instead. And the price he pays is that he gives up his eyesight. So he's blind. Uh-huh. But he can still fight competently, he's just blind. <laughs> so anyway, so, we, so we, we break the she-elf out of prison, the cannibal she-elf. 
Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, yet another seal is broken. And so I think now we've got three of the four seals broken, so Fury Eye herself is the last remaining seal. And if she's, de- if she's killed, then the seals will be broken, and, you know, all heck is going to break loose. Mm-hmm. And so at, at this point, once Kaim learns the nature of the seals and what he's being asked to do, because, you know, Vertile begs him, please stop them from, kill- from destroying the last seal, please save Fury Eye. So at this point, Inuat shows up with his black dragon. And Inuat and his dragon fight Kaim and his dragon. Uh, Kaim and Angelus lose handedly. Inuat plants a big kiss on Fury Eye and takes her away with him to the Empire's flying fortress. And so naturally, we set off after them. Along the way, we meet this little kid called, uh, shoot, what's his name? Sira. Siri. S E R E. Sere. That's his name. Sere. He turns out to be the, the sibling of Mana, who is again the the head of the Church of the Watchers and hence the head of the Empire. Um, Mana was unloved. Her mother sent her off in the wilderness to die, but the mother loved Siri. But eventually the parents were killed in an imperial attack on their village, so I guess it doesn't matter. Um, Siri has made a pact with a golem, you know, a big stone creature, and the price he paid doesn't sound like much of a price, really. He lost his time, so he doesn't age. He's stuck as a child forever. So he's, so he's immortal, which is good, but he can't age. He's stuck as a child, which is bad. Kind of like the little girl vampire in Interview with the Vampire. She's, yeah. she's stuck as a little girl forever. And she has all mm-hmm. sorts of psychological issues. Because she's hundreds of years old, yet she's still a child. But anyway. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the, the three seals are broken. So now we're mounting a direct assault on the... Well, to, to back up, the Union musters all its forces and mounts a last-ditch desperate attack on the Empire to try to save Furia and prevent the destruction of the world. And just when it looks like we've won, uh, the Imperial Flying Fortress drops the equivalent of a series of... Well, it drops the dark fantasy equivalent of a series of nuclear bombs on the battlefield, which turns the whole place into a hellscape full of undead soldiers. Uh, So we have to kind of cut our way through that. We hop on our dragon. We make our way to the fortress. We have a big climactic fight with Inuat and his dragon. And depending on which ending you get, things go differently. Um, So we'll kind of stick with ending... uh, the way things play out in ending E, because that's more efficient for our purposes. So, like, in ending E, by the time we get into the fortress, uh, Fury Eye is dead. So the final seal has been broken. And so now the Watchers are descending... Well, the sky is kind of opening, and the Watchers are descending from the heavens. And the Watchers in this game are giant demon babies. I mean, giant humanoid babies. Mm-hmm. Um, much to Ariok's delight. <laughs> She's like, big babies to eat, yay! Uh, <laughs> but they wind up eating her, so it's a it's a bit of a Aww. it's a bit of turnabout there because they a bunch of watchers are converging on her, and she's like, oh, the ultimate feast, and then she gets eaten. Oh my God, <laughs> yeah. So it's a bit of turnabout there, and then the um, mm-hmm. shortly after the watchers appears this entity called the Queen Beast, and. You know, the, the confrontation with her will go differently depending on whether you choose Route D or E. If it's Route E, then um, Angela says something cryptic. You know, if you want to catch a lion's cub, you got to do it on its own turf, which I'm not sure exactly what that means. But <laughs> it, basically, I think it means you have to fight the queen beast on her own turf if you want to destroy her. So they engage the queen beast directly, who is basically a, a giant naked woman who looks like she's made of stone. Um, looks mm-hmm. looks a great deal like the flower boss we fought in Drakengard 3. Coincidentally. Oh. Not coincidentally. 
<laughs> Richie, was this the flower lady you were telling me about at some point? No, she doesn't make it to Automata. No, okay. unfortunately. Um, okay. Well, fortunately, I guess, because she's kind of the, the thing that causes the human race to yeah. go extinct, which, yeah. we'll get to, which we'll get to in a second. <laughs> but, okay. Um, but yeah, so we, we engage the queen beast, and by this time she's swollen as if she's pregnant, so we don't know what's about to happen. But as soon as Kaim and Angelus engage the queen beast, there opens up this rift in space and time, and they fall into what is modern Tokyo. So first you see <laughs> first you see the queen beast land in the city, and then Angelus and Kaim come after her, and lo and behold, it's it's another rhythm game boss fight, just like in Dragon Guard Three. You're playing oh, snap. you're playing Guitar Hero, and you have to hit square and triangle at the appropriate times to counteract mm-hmm. her musical intonations. And so because of this, I think the queen beast is the flower, um, because ah. the flower boss fight and the queen beast boss fight are basically identical, practically speaking, hmm. um, except for some. Like visual differences, so you know I think the Queen Beast is the flower after ending D of Drakengard three, um, and so it, it made it to the Drakengard dimension, and well, it, I, well, it made it back to the Drakengard dimension after it was sealed away in another dimension because the seals were what were keeping it from coming back, and now that the seals are broken, it's back. But now it went through a dimis- dimensional rift into our world, and so once you defeat it, it sort of disintegrates into this fine particulate matter. Um, and Angelus is sort of reveling in the wind. She's, you know, flapping her wings and hovering there. She's like, oh, it's done at last. And then all of a sudden, she's struck by two missiles. Boom! She's blown up, and her body falls from the sky, and she's impaled on the Tower of Tokyo. Because the Japanese Defense Force said, you know what? We better not let this dragon fly around. We're going to destroy it with, with missiles. And so that's what they did. So poor Angelus is dead, because the Japanese Aww. Air Force couldn't be bothered to sort of ascertain the nature of this creature before they decided to wipe it up. It turns out perhaps to be a mistake on their part, but it, it really inconsequential. And so the, the, the fine particulate matter into which the queen beast dissolved turns out to be the mesoparticle called the demon particle. Um, and that is the source of the white chlorination syndrome that sets the stage for near gestalt slash replicants. Uh, which comes later. Now, initially ending E of Drakengard was supposed to be a joke. But that eventually became the foundation of the whole Nier franchise, which again, <laughs> Yoko Taro is, you know, clinically insane in the best possible way, which, <laughs> I, I, which, to, which what I'm trying to say by that is he, he's highly eccentric and that informs his storytelling and I think really makes it good, you know. Mm-hmm. We should also point out that um, Yoko Taro appears in public wearing a giant monster head. Yes. <laughs> if, if, you, if, if, you're, if you're familiar with the character Emil, every time he appears in public, he's wearing Emil's head, essentially. I'm not sure whether Emil was based on that or whether that's based on Emil. Yeah. Wait, I thought that was his face. I, I did too, but it turns out it's a mask. I mean, I was blown away when oh I learned God. it. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we, so we, we got through Drakengard 3 and 1, and now we're finally ready to talk about Nier. <laughs> so did, did that make sense? Because I, f- I feel like I went really fast. Uh. Well, I think that's as much sense as it's ever going to make, all things considered. Yeah, no, and I think people who are really familiar with this are going to be irked that I, I had to gloss over a lot of stuff and sort of leave out a lot of stuff um, yeah we have a time limit today so we gotta we gotta be efficient yeah i hear people mention these games a lot and i never even imagined that they were this dark and messed up oh absolutely um yeah i always had a picture of like skyrim when people talked about them well now drakengard 2 is a lot brighter and more chipper but Yokotaro didn't have much to do with that one uh, <laughs> so you know so okay. there you go so now we get to the events of Nier. 
Yeah. All right. Okay. Hick, Nia. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, let me just, because I, I had to make notes on this because it's kind of insane. Um, even even the great Nick had to make notes for this. <laughs> and he's a lawyer for a living. Yeah. So. Of course, as a lawyer, you know, I make notes. Um, so, oh. yeah, so the Queen Beast disintegrated. It, this is stuff you kind of don't really find out in near until much later in the game, but we may as well just talk about it now because we're trying to go so, into chronological okay. order. But yeah. Yeah, so now we're going to talk about the original near games, which are the hunky and also hunky yes, the, the, protagonist games. The young hunky okay. and older hunky. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, like I said, the, the near gestalt and near replicant are basically identical in terms of narrative and gameplay, except that in replicant, it's a younger near looking out for his sister, and in gestalt, it's an older near looking out for his daughter. So yeah. brother near and father mm-hmm. near, basically. Um, <laughs> okay. Near Replicant was never released in the West, but it was released in Japan, although people in the West have gotten hold of copies of it. Uh, but it was never mm-hmm. formally released in the West. The only one released in the West was Gestalt. Um, okay. And I think Near Automata follows Gestalt because you find references scattered about to a man who destroyed the world in an effort to save his daughter. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Although some, pe- although some people say that Brother Near is the canon version because of other factors. But I think the fact that you find these notes about a man you know, fighting for his daughter pretty much makes clear to me that it's Gestalt. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, you know, people will argue you about agree, that. You agree, Richie? Yes. But but also, like, as I was saying, I, I think I think near Automata just, like, it works better on its own if we just don't bother really thinking that hard about how it connects to Gestalt slash Replicant. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're probably right. Um, but your, people will naturally be interested to learn about near, but... Yeah, you know. yeah. Um... Yeah, I guess we'll we'll get to it when we get to it. But there's there's some yeah. things yeah. I think work better on their own. I think yeah. you're right. Yeah. I I, pl- I played Automata before I knew a blessed thing about Nier, and it was a great experience. Yeah, <laughs> uh, because I, I'd highly recommend that. But it, of course, listening <laughs> listening to this podcast will defeat yeah. that. But <laughs> <laughs> I played all of the games related to Nier Automata before playing it. Oh yeah, yeah, I platinumed all of them. Yeah, congrats, brilliant strategist. Yeah, or. Brilliant strategist. I don't know what's the proper word. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Richie was about to make a smartest comment because he knows I'm lying. I think everyone knows you're lying. <laughs> See, I, I did too. I was just too polite to to call you out. <laughs> I, I try to be a good boy. Yeah. It doesn't always work. But... <laughs> okay, so original near. Yep. And so the uh, let's go. The queen, the queen bee. After you defeat her in Dragon Guard One, ending E, which was supposed to be a joke, but wound up setting the stage for another franchise. <laughs> um, she disintegrates into this fine particulate matter called Meso, which is also known as the Demon Particle. And meanwhile, the Japanese military takes Angelus's body off to a secret location and experiments on her, and her body becomes the source of all the magic in the world. Well, basically, the red magic you use in the game. Is traceable to the experiments they did on Angelus's body. She's the she's the reason magic is introduced into our world, uh, which before before that um, did not have magic. And so the the meso particle, whenever anyone comes into contact with it, they're afflicted with this thing called white chlorination syndrome. And one of two things will happen to you: you'll either turn to a pillar of salt, kind of like in the Book of Genesis, Lot's wife turns into a pillar of salt. Uh, it's kind of the same thing here, and. That's one option. Another option is you'll turn into this, you know, mad, aggressive creature. These creatures come to be known as the Legion, and you'll just turn aggressive and attack anybody you see, more or less. Um, These creatures operate under the leadership of a person called Red Eye, 
which kind of ties back to Drakengard because the Imperial soldiers have red eyes and they're kind of mindless automatons killing people. So that's another tie-in to Drakengard. Um, mm-hmm. So, and, and the reason that people have different outcomes with the white chlorination syndrome is that when you're exposed to the Mesa particle, you're confronted with some some kind of god and or deity or spirit or something or other. I think it's whatever power created the Watchers to destroy humankind. Um, that creature will confront you and give you a choice. You can either A, die and turn to salt, or B, give up your free will and become a member of the Legion and start killing people under the leadership of Red Eye. And so some people choose to become members of the Legion, some people choose to die. I think most people choose to die. Um, which is why the widespread death and disintegration from the white chlorination syndrome. And the reason they call it chlorination syndrome is you're literally turning to salt, of which chloride is an element, you know. So that's, that's, that's why they call it that. So you got the white chlorination syndrome. Initially, it starts out as a, as a fairly localized phenomenon. I think in, how do you say it, the Shinjuku province? Yeah, Shinjuku. Shinjuku, yeah, it starts off there. And so they, they build this wall of Jericho around Shinjuku to try to contain it. But the Legion come together under Red Eye's leadership and break through the wall, and so it starts to spread all over Japan. To the point where Japan becomes desperate and forms a military alliance with the United States, and nuclear bombs are then dropped at locations throughout Japan (laughs) to try to contain it. And so initial reports are that the Legion has been wiped out, but the disintegrated remains of the people who were infected with the white chlorination syndrome wafted up into the atmosphere and are carried throughout the world, particularly to very heavily populated China. As a result of which, the syndrome spreads worldwide. So, you know, the nukes were, were not a good idea, no. because it spread, it spread the syndrome all over the world. Uh-huh. Uh, and so, the, the, just, for, just to kind of place it in time, the dragon and the queen beast land in Tokyo in like, I think 2003, June of 2003. When the game starts, we're in 2049. We find this dude in a, in a hooded jacket, um, you know, huddled up in an abandoned supermarket with either his daughter or his sister, depending on which game you're playing. Mm-hmm. And he's trying to protect her from these creatures called Shades. And at this point, you don't know what the Shades are, but once you understand Project Gestalt, you'll know what they are. It's like these shadowy creatures called Shades. And he's got this talking book next to him that he seems to resent. But the shades are too much for him. And so he has to rely on the book to gain the magic. The book is a grimoire. It's a talking book that confers magical powers, basically. And so he has to rely on the book to gain the magical powers he needs to repel the shades. And we'll say daughter. We'll just follow Gestalt, just for the sake of it. Uh, And save his daughter. And he tells his daughter, don't touch the book. Whatever you do, don't touch the book. Of course she touches the book while he's fighting. And that leads her to... You know, contract some sort of deathly illness, and at the end of the intro, he's after you get to fight some shades and use all your cool magical powers. He's clutching her and he's saying, "Help us, somebody help us!" Uh. <laughs> Stella. No, he doesn't say Stella. But <laughs> and then you know, fast forward one thousand three hundred twelve years into the future, over over a millennium in the future, we find near and the girl's name is Yona. Yona living together peacefully in an idyllic village. <laughs> You're like, what? Are they st- is it the same people? Well, hmm. Sort of, yeah. And her name is Nier? No, his name is Nier. Her oh, name God. is Yona. His, na- his name is Nier. Oh, wait. So Nier Automata is named after him? Yeah. Yeah. Because it's in the Nier family. Yeah, yeah. So the, yeah the, Mind blown. Okay, cool. The player character in Nier Gestalt slash Replicant is Nier. 
I mean, the, the reasons why they're still alive and together after 1,312 years are convoluted. It's not revealed till the end of the game. Uh-huh. Um, but we'll just say that all is not as it seems okay. <laughs> at this point. Now, we're, uh-huh. we're told that, you know, humankind is on the brink of extinction, and we're just waiting out the clock, basically, at this point. Uh, but uh-huh. once the game really begins after the intro, it doesn't seem that way. It's like you're, they're living together in this idyllic village. Um, Yona has this strange disease by which these strange black runes appear on her skin, and they kind of float up and down on her skin. Um, mm-hmm. We c- later come to find out that's called the Black Scroll, but that ties into the whole reason why they're still around. And so the game, the game saves that for the end because uh, it's like the big reveal at the end. And so mm-hmm. he, he's doing odd jobs to try to take care of his daughter who has this disease. Um, and the village is led by two characters named Devola and Papala, names that'll be familiar to anyone who's played through Near Automata. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's red- led by these two red-haired twins named Devola and Papala. Devil is usually off doing some eccentric thing while Papala does the administrative work of running the village and gives us lots of hints throughout the game. Mm-hmm. Um, one day, Nier tells Yona about a mystical flower called, a very rare mystical flower called a lunar tear that can grant any wish. And so naturally, Yona, wishing to be free of her sickness and being a stupid kid, you know, heads off to try to look for the lunar tear. Um, we have no idea where she's gone. I think Papala suggests that we go look at this place called the Lost Shrine. And so we make our way through the Lost Shrine, which is kind of the game's first dungeon, and we find Yona on some altar guarded by two menacing giant gold mechanical-looking suits of armor called Hansel and Gretel. Um, we defeat them, and but in the process we see this book kind of sealed in this orb of red energy, and so naturally we hack and slash the red energy field to get the book out. Turns out it's a grimoire. He calls himself Weiss. He's a smart aleck talking book who accompanies us throughout the game and gives us magical powers. And functionally, in terms of gameplay, the Grimoire works just like the pods that accompany you in Nier Automata. Basically, that's your ranged attacks, uh, with some special attacks that you get as you find spells that... See, we're a little rough when we break Weiss out of his stasis inside the red energy field, and so as a result of that, he forgets like most of the spells that he knew. And so we spend like half the game running around looking for these secret spells, because we hope that one of them will find the means to cure... will contain the means to cure Yona of her disease. So that that's the quest that occupies us for like the first half of the game. Okay. Uh, and there's a legend that when another grimoire called Noir throws the world into chaos, Grimoire Weiss will appear and set everything right with his secret verses that he's now forgotten. <laughs> so, <laughs> so in an effort to seek a cure for Yona and, and in a, an effort to keep Grimoire Noir from destroying the world, as it says in the legend, we have to run around and our basic mission is to find these seals. And basically after every boss fight up to a point, we get one of the sealed spells. Right. Yeah. Um, so our, our quest takes us to a secluded village called Eri, where we're not quite welcome, but where we meet our scantily clad, foul-mouthed, violent-tempered sidekick called Kaine. Um, and she's, in terms of personality, just think A2 from Nero yeah. Tomata. And, uh-huh. and, and you'll have a pretty good idea of what Kaine's disposition is like. As well as her manner of dress. Because <laughs> uh, these, these... She's effectively wearing some napkins and some dental floss. Basically, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like some some artfully tied together uh, napkins and dental floss that conceal just the right places and really no more. <laughs> it's really just down to like one or two lines. Like it, it, they they talk about her being intersex and like um, yeah. material that's that's outside of the game. But then in the game, it's just there's just like one scene where someone says, "Oh, are you still pretending to be a girl?" 
and that's really all you get flashbacks to to her childhood right and she's basically mm-hmm. an intersex who identi- who presents as a female basically. yeah yeah she's also possessed by a male like entity that we'll we'll get into later on but like she's 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 intersex in in like kind of two different ways right cuz the yeah. male shade is basically possessing her and if she if she lets down her guard, he'll take over. And there's, there's yeah. a couple boss fights where you fight her when the shade has taken over. Yeah, basically. I think his name is Tyran. Yeah, Tyran. Um, and he's got a really interesting backstory that we probably don't have time for. No, uh, mm-hmm. at this point. But yeah, so we, one of the themes throughout is that he kind of is possessed by this shade called Tyran. And in like the second playthrough, where you kind of see things more from her point of view, you can hear how he taunts her and torments her every waking moment, pretty much. So you come across her, and then this big shade named Hook attacks the village, and uh, it's the same shade that killed her grandmother some time ago. Um, but anyway, we, we put his eye out, and we repel him, and he runs away to live to fight another day. Mm-hmm. And then... Yeah, so anyway, so we, we pick it up from there, and Kaine can use magic because she's possessed by the shade. Um... Seems like after most boss fights, though, Kaine winds up critically wounded. Like this happens frequently. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, in cutscenes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's a reason for her to kind of leave the company, I guess, because she's always getting critically wounded. So after the after the fight with Hook, we leave Kaine to recover. We return to the village. We do some quests to strengthen our weapons because more and more shades are starting to appear around the village. And in the process, we meet a colorful pair called Jacob and Gideon, who are brothers. Um, they send us to find Scrap because their mother is missing. We fight our way into the scrap heap to fight an automated defense system, and then we find that their mother is dead. She basically forsook them to go be with her lover. And so it's kind of a crushing realization when you find that out. So we come back to the boys. We tell them their mother abandoned them and died. Um, And they say, okay, well, shoot, that kind of sucks. But, you know, if you need any work on your weapons, come back, because Jacob and Gideon's shot is always open. And Jacob is kind of the mature brother in charge of things, and Gideon is kind of the the idiot-dependent uh, at least when you first meet them. Later on, Gideon mm-hmm. kind of goes nuts. Uh, but we'll, mm-hmm. I guess we can get to that. So upon returning to the village, we find Kaine and learn that the village is being attacked by shades, including Hook, whom we just defeated earlier. So oh, we, we run all over the village with Kaine, who's now feeling good, uh, fighting Hook. Near the end, Hook releases a hallucinogen that causes Kaine to kind of hear her grandmother's voice. He's kind of taunting her and manipulating her because he's the one who killed her grandmother. Here's where you come to find out that the grandmother made Kaine an entire wreath of lunar tears, even though most people will go their entire lives without seeing one. They're so rare. Somehow the grandmother managed to find a bunch of these and put them together in kind of a nice little wreath. So that's how we find our lunar tear. But Hook tortured and killed the grandmother and taunted Kaine for her weakness and inability to stop it. So Hook's kind of a sadistic shade. But eventually our our heroes win, and Kaine mentions a king who was rumored to have come down with the Black Scroll. And so she speculates that they may have found a cure for it. Naturally, Nier wants to find a cure for the Black Scrawl that has afflicted Yona. So we set off to the desert village of Fasad. That's the name, Fasad. Fasad? <laughs> yeah. The name of the Sounds village sketchy. Is, it does. <laughs> what do you think they, they wear in Fasad? Masks? They wear masks, mm. exactly. Oh, brilliant, <laughs> huh? Yeah, I think what, that's rule 86,502 that they have oh. to wear masks. This place is is a lawyer's paradise. (laughs) (laughs) Why? 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 The whole culture is based on this series of rules everyone has to obey. Right. (laughs) I I think there were, what, like over 120,000 rules? Yeah, yeah. 
it was insane. It's like, and sometimes the, and sometimes it's amusing because some, sometimes the rules will overlap and contradict each other, and it leads leads to some amusing predicaments. Like, oh, this rule says this, but this rule says this. Oh, what are we gonna do? Well, this third rule kind of supersedes the other rules, and so we can do this. Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> and. And Kaine is welcome in this village because she saved the prince's life a long time ago. I think it was the prince or somebody in the village. She saved their life because they were because wolves are kind of roaming the area outside of uh, facade, and so Kaine killed some wolves and saved some villagers. And so under rule, you know, eighty five bajillion and two, they owe her a debt. <laughs> and so she's always welcome okay. in the village, right? <clears throat> and okay. so she, she walks right on in. As it turns out, the king has passed away from the black scroll, unfortunately. But the young prince is still alive. But the young prince is missing. Uh-oh. And so as you're wandering around the village, uh, sort of kind of taking it in, you meet a disfigured girl named Fira. Of course, it doesn't matter that she's disfigured because everybody wears masks. Um, and the reason she's in facade is because her parents cast her out because of her disfigurement. Okay. So anyway, she comes up again later. So the prince is missing, so we go to a place called the Baron Temple to find him. Uh, and after a boss fight with a bunch of cubes, which is kind of reminiscent of many of the encounters in Nier Automata, or kind of foreshadows a lot of the encounters in Nier Automata, because you, you, you literally fight a bunch of cubes. And after that fight, we find the prince and bring him back to assume his place as king. And, of course, collect another hidden verse, because that's what you do after a boss fight. You collect a hidden verse. And so after this, Nier has a dream, hinting that <clears throat> a sealed verse is hidden away in a place called the Forest of Myth. To which we'll return in Nier Automata, but that's another matter. <laughs> so naturally, <laughs> Nier goes there. And this is widely regarded as one of the more annoying parts of the game because you have to cut, because everybody in the village is afflicted with this thing called like the death dream, I think it is. Yeah, yeah. And they can only communicate and experience life in terms of text. So it's like it's a text wild goose. You're trying to nail down the solution to all these riddles. And it's all text puzzles. That this dream thing, it's a contagious dream. And it starts yeah. affecting the game itself. So characters will start talking as though they're in a play. And there will be on-screen stage right. directions and things that explain everything that's happening. Yep. And Nier Automata does something like this with some of the yeah. some of the scenes, uh, just to kind of call back. But there's no... In, in Nier, there's actually a reason for it, this death dream. And Nier Automata just chooses to do it as a matter of artistic direction. But whatever. Uh, I, I enjoyed it. And I think the source of it is this tree called the Sleeping Beauty, which we learn is a sophisticated sentient archival system designed to record the collective memories of humankind, at least going back like 2,000 years, um, which may have been when the tree was created. I'm not sure. But yeah, the, the tree is like a, a sentient memory bank storing the collective memories of mankind, which is fairly important to ending E, which may or may not actually appear in the game. <laughs> but that's another convoluted aspect <laughs> of the storytelling. Um, so after we solve the riddle and wake the village, Nier returns home. And I can't remember if we actually get a, a verse or a spell after that one. I think we do, but I can't remember. And, you know, after this, we receive a letter from Yona's boyfriend. <gasps> Yona has a boyfriend, supposedly. Oh, snap. <laughs> we receive a letter purporting to be from Yona's boyfriend. Says that uh, the boyfriend is sick. And Yona gets the letter and she's like, oh, daddy, my boyfriend is sick. Please go help him. Mm-hmm. And so he's like, what? You've got a boyfriend? Oh, angry dad. Ooh. <laughs> I'm going to go give this young whippersnapper a piece of my mind. You get away from my daughter. Well, it's not exactly like that. But. That's when Sin redubs him. Or talks to him in, in her own language that only yes. she and Derek understand. Yeah. Like, that, that would have been a good riff on the death stream if it like just forced everyone to talk like Sin. 
You're saying my own language that no one can understand, but yesterday we had Cal on and he spoke it. Yes, it's true. I think uh, wow. a lot more people understand it now that you might think. Mm. Well, you know, it's, it's catching on. Yeah. Well, you're, you're, you're like, you're like J.R. Tolkien. You're actually inventing languages. Because for- mm. <laughs> Tolkien actually invented elven languages. Like, he, he didn't did, just, yeah. you know, make up random phrases. He actually yeah. created languages. Yeah, he was a linguist. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's he, a it's a little known fact that the language he invented is actually based on my imaginary language. Okay. Which seems incredible seeing that you were born well after his death. Well she predicted it after it happened. <laughs> that's right. She's good at this. <laughs> she is good at predicting things, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Predicting cut content and retroactively predicting linguistic developments in high fantasy novels. Yes. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. <laughs> well, that hurts my brain. <laughs> Oh dear! This is why I love coming on with you guys. It's a it's a wild world of wonderful things. <laughs> so yes, yeah, so we so we head off just because we're short on time, I guess. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, we have to wrap up in like fifteen minutes because Richie has got to sleep. No, it's like don't. five a.m. in Australia or something. It's 4 oh my god! Oh my god! Yes, you do. You told me that you're like, oh, I'm not sure. I have to go. Like, how long is this? Yeah, but it's fine. Oh my god! Now it's fine. Oh my yeah, god! You don't have to do anything. Well, you have to sleep. It's like 5 a.m. It's 4 a.m. Okay, the reason I'm a little irate right now is because before the podcast, you were like, I'm not sure, it's a little late. But now you're like, no, no, it's fine. Oh, now, oh, oh, I see how it is. I see how it is. When I, when it's like, oh, it's a podcast with Sin, well, I'm not sure, it's kind of late. As soon as Richie knows, oh, oh, Nick is going to be there. It's going to be cool. Yeah, I don't need to sleep. (laughs) Hey, everybody wants to be around lawyers. I don't know. Because we're the cool kids, man. <laughs> we're not the cool kids. Yeah, Nick, I'm stuck in a contract with a strange podcast. I need to talk to you about getting out of it later on. So, so are, you, are you Lawrence or Gehrman? <laughs> I guess you're Gehrman because you're stuck. <laughs> oh, man. That's wild. <laughs> um, well, I don't want to keep you up too late, no, I guess. No, it's fine. So. I don't care. Yeah, he doesn't care, Nick, because it's you. If it was me, he'd care. Yeah, I hope I'm not, like, being inconsiderate and just, like, hogging all the exposition. Uh, no, 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 don't worry, because, like, you, you clearly, like, I I am not as familiar with it as you, because you've got notes. Yeah, I, I, I yeah. made, like, 12 pages of notes, because oh, I'm a God. lawyer, and yeah. that's, that's what we do. <laughs> See, because Sin said we're discussing Nia, by which I thought she just meant Nier Automata. Okay, and yeah. I didn't and- know we were doing the whole Dragon Guard uh, Gestalt thing. Yeah, but I told you multiple episodes. You should have extrapolated from that. But this is one episode. No, but I told you we're doing multiple episodes on Nier, so you should have, like, understood that that means we're starting from the beginning till the end. All right, okay. So the first episode would be the beginning, and the beginning is these games. Yeah, but it could also have been the beginning of Automata. Because it's hard to define the beginning, I guess. <laughs> no, like Nick, are you taking Rich's side? Uh, I wouldn't dare. Good. I wouldn't dare. <laughs> All right, go on, Nick. <laughs> Although I'm kind of glad I got to hear the clapping, though. That, that was that was cool because it's noon, so you, you don't have to worry about waking the neighbors. Uh, yeah, it's true. There we go. Like in the in the sleep podcast, it's like you have to kind of clench your armchair so that you don't do the clapping and yeah. the pounding of the yeah. Desk. My my hands are in fists the entire time, and I punch the air. Why <laughs> <laughs> aren't you listening to me, Richard? <laughs> <laughs> our, our, we, we love our long-suffering straight man, though we, we, we really do. Um, 
All right, cool. So I guess I'll get back to it. Um, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So we've been through the forest of myth. Now we're on our way to meet Yona's supposed boyfriend, who is supposed to be sick. Uh huh. Um, so once we get there, though, it's really weird because as soon as we kind of set foot on the grounds, everything kind of well, most things kind of turn to black and white. Mm-hmm. Um, which is which should tip you off that some you know strange things are afoot. Uh, and and right. as it turns out, many many very strange things are afoot. Um, and you see all these. What you initially assume are statues in the courtyard, but they look like people in random positions, uh, sort of like how the people are the petrified people in Yahargul are kind of in mm. random positions. Only there aren't as many, you know, because in Yahargul it's thousands of people, but here it's like a few people scattered here and there that are kind of petrified in these random positions. You assume they're statues, but you later come to find out they're actually petrified people. <clears throat> mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, you enter the mansion and you find a young man named. And this is going to ring a bell for a lot of Nero Tomato players. You find a young man named Emil. Uh, my favorite character in the whole franchise. <laughs> <laughs> I love Emil. He's a wonderfully complex blend of sadness, sensitivity, and unbridled destruction. Um, mm-hmm. But we'll, we'll get to the unbridled destruction part later. Right now, he's, he looks like a typical young boy. Uh, but he's essentially blindfolded. or it, it, It's either a blindfold or these opaque glasses that he wears. But he can't see, and it's by choice. He walks around with his eyes covered up. And that's because... Anyone who makes eye contact with him is immediately petrified. Oh, snap! Hence all the seeming statues in random positions you see scattered about the courtyard. Does so he- he's like Medusa. Yeah. Kind of, yeah. You, you look into his, he's got these red eyes, and you look into his eyes, and bam. Of course, red eyes are kind of a recurrent visual motif throughout the series. Um, so he has these red eyes, and whenever you look into his eyes, you, you're petrified. Can he turn people into snacks? Nope, just stone, unfortunately. Aww. Now, now okay. later on, he acquires these crazy magical powers, so maybe he can. Okay. <laughs> but at this point, all he can do is turn people to stone. And that's why he walks around blindfolded, because he doesn't want to accidentally turn anybody to stone. Mm-hmm. Have you played Kirby, Sin? Yeah. There's a power in that that turns everything on screen into a snack. Oh, that's right. I did not know that. The, the cookie, play the Kirby. chef, yeah. Yeah. I played a little bit of Kirby, he, not he too He gets much. a giant pot, and he, like, bangs the ladles together, and then all the enemies jump in the pot, and they come out as oh snacks. <laughs> that is amazing! <laughs> Do you eat them? Yeah. Kirby ah! eats everything. <laughs> it kills everything oh, on screen by turning it into delicious food. <gasps> that is that is my type of game. Oh my yeah. god. Yeah, I, I haven't gotten that far in Kirby, so... Yeah, Kirby's, like, godlike once you get to, like, some of the more advanced powers and stuff. <laughs> But yeah, no, that you should play Kirby because all because he's constantly he's constantly eating and everything is a snack. And yeah, and he doesn't even gain weight. That's amazing. No, nope, he, he's he's a little plump, but that's as plump as he gets. You know. <laughs> yeah. When he puffs up, it's just air, so he can just blow it out again. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, it's, he's, he's, he doesn't gain any weight. He's a he's like the Tasmanian Devil. He's like a bottomless pit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like on, on Tiny Toons, the counterpart to the Tasmanian Devil is called Dizzy the Devil. Mm. And like one episode, Aww. he eats like an entire battleship. It's like they're feeding him one ridiculous thing after another, and one time they feed him like a battleship, and he just swallows it. <laughs> like, oh my god! That's, so that's Kirby. He can eat a battleship and not gain weight. But anyway, <laughs> oh, I love Kirby. Haven't played Kirby mm. in ages. But thanks for bringing Kirby up, Richard. That that that's, warm, yeah. that, that gives me warm fuzzies in my heart. Aww. Um, oh. Aww. Yeah. So, but Emil, oh, there's a library inside the mansion, right? You guys, wait a minute. Yep. Emil is like round head, and Kirby is a round ball. Oh. Confirmed. Okay. Good. 
Deepest lore. Yep, Kirby is a meal. <laughs> I'm just going to look up to see if there's fan art of what would happen if Kirby ate a meal. <laughs> well, that, that's sort of right up your area of academic expertise, um, isn't it? Those kinds maybe. of... Yeah. Yeah. Sort of. Well, I just found <laughs> I found Kirby with uh, the Wii Fit Trainer's legs, which is kind of disturbing. But the rest of him is just Kirby. Yeah. Oh, man, that's awesome. Well, actually, Richard, didn't, didn't you spend like a year of your life looking at pictures of Bowsette? Uh, no, that, that, that was shortly afterward. Okay, yeah. I managed to avoid Bowsette. Now, whenever yeah. anyone asks me, like, what was it like, I'm just like, well, you know how you got sick of Bowsette after, like, a month? Yeah. I didn't have <laughs> that luxury. Because <laughs> yeah. that was part of your academic research, kiss for your dissertation. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> Imagine if you studied something useful, Richie. Ooh. That was the longest woo ever. That, that, that woo, that was a formidable woo. Yeah, thank you. I was like, how long can this go on? This is, this is <laughs> impressive. <laughs> <laughs> my wife hands me a note, going out for a bit, be back soon, heart. Oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> she, does, she does cute little things like that all the time. I love it. A- anyway, we're, we're like the, the most nauseating couple, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, Schmoopy. No, you're Schmoopy. No, you're Schmoopy. Oh, Seinfeld. Anyway, but yeah, but when you first meet him, he doesn't have the big round head. That doesn't. Come, he looks like just a normal, you know, young. I think seven year old or so boy, seven to ten year old boy. I think he's meant to be ten. Yeah. Yeah, ten. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Um, okay. So he looks normal, except you know he he's dressed rather well and he walks around with a blindfold because he doesn't want to petrify anybody. He feels <laughs> rather bad about that, as we know about Emil. He feels rather bad about killing things, even if it seems arguably justified. Uh-huh. Uh Even though he's a well, we'll get to that. He's kind of a super weapon, but we'll get to that. Okay. He thinks that in the library inside the mansion, there'll be some sort of tome that has a way to cure his eyes so that he no longer petrifies people. So naturally, your job is to escort Emil through the library. Now, there's a butler in the mansion, and why the freaking butler couldn't escort him to the library? I'm... <laughs> hey, it's, uh, he's not paid to do that job, okay? Yeah, it's like... Well, the butler's like, well, I'm not the protagonist of this game. I shouldn't be running these yeah. fetch missions. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> I'm just an NPC. As it turns Ooh. out, it wasn't Emil that sent the letter to Yona. It was the butler uh, who wanted to get mm. near to the mansion. I think, uh, I think there's actually some danger involved maybe in going to the library. And Neil is much better equipped to handle dangerous situations than the butler is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's really why Nier has to do it. I just figured I'd poke fun at video game logic because I'd love to do that. Um, how a superhuman hunter can't climb over a fence or swim for heaven's sake anyway sorry (laughs) because the freaking developers don't want to program water physics Um, anyway back to the game (laughs) back to the game Uh, let's see in the library we find we have a boss fight with grimoire I'm a little fuzzy on the name Rupert or Rupert something like that the name begins with an R we have a boss fight with a grimoire who uses magic against us uh, hang on I forget the name. It's like Rupert or Rupert or something like that. Like, I, I, I hastily wrote down the name, and I don't think I wrote it down correctly. So that's why I'm a little fuzzy on the exact pronunciation. Um, I thought it was Grimoire Rubric, but that's something else. Rubric! That's it. Yeah, I, I think I missed her. Yeah, Ru- that's it. For some reason, my brain bungled that into Rupert. But yeah, Rubric, I think is. I think you're right. Um, so we have a boss fight with this Grimoire nameless. <laughs> the nameless Grimoire. <laughs> The long-lost son of Grimoire Gwyn. <laughs> now, the, the book does contain a cure. 
not for Emil, but for those he's petrified. So with the knowledge we gain from this grimoire, we're able to cure the, the, the people who are petrified in the courtyard. It's gri- Grimoire Rubrum, apparently. Rubrum. Rubrum. Oh. Okay, so okay. we eventually found our way to the correct pronunciation. Because <laughs> <laughs> we're a professional podcast. Yeah. Uh, okay, cool. So yeah, so that's the boss we fight. Um, and then once that is done, Kane and Emil kind of hit it off right away. Because they both know what it's like to be kind of ostracized and outcast and everything like that. You know, kind of mm-hmm. because she's intersex and because she um, has that shade. You know, she's always felt mm-hmm. ostracized and alone. And Emil yeah. the same way because of his petrification. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she calls them a, uh, a merry band of freaks. Exactly. That's how Aww. they described, yeah. This place is a cesspool of doddering old folk and degenerates. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of a thing. You know, Miyazaki seems to draw some inspiration from some of these games. Because, like, in Drakengard, the sword that the protagonist uses reminds me a lot of the dark sword that the dark race use in Dark Souls. Yeah. Yeah, I was about to uh, to say that, because I googled the Hunkinir protagonist, and I saw, like, the sword. And it's literally the Dark Souls sword. You know, so I think... Uh, to me, that's evidence that Miyazaki took at least some inspiration from this franchise. Yeah. Um, yeah. Only Yoko Taro does not share Miyazaki's uh, misgivings about portraying violence against children. Because um, there's, <laughs> there's one scene in Drakengard where you see the golem, you know, crush mana. Just poof. <laughs> it's just crush oh. And of course, there's the cannibal she-elf who eats children. And there are the demon babies whom you fight in one final boss battle in Ending D, I think. <laughs> so, so they're basically the same it's just Miyazaki is not allowed to portray it on screen yeah so if it were Yoko Tower directing Bloodborne we would have, we would <laughs> oh have seen God. we would have seen Murgo at the end you know the boss fight with the wet nurse and yeah we probably we would have seen so many babies being crushed yeah oh. and we, we, we would have seen uh, Ocelot in the boss fight with Osiris <laughs> yeah and uh, you know and Ocelot would probably have been eaten or crushed at some point <laughs> oh yeah but anyway, so after all this is done and the people are unpetrified and, and Emil is, he's kind of disappointed that he, he's not, his eyes aren't cured, but he's made a new friend in Kainai because they're both different. So they identify with each other and they're <laughs> fast friends throughout the game from this point. Hmm. So Nier returns to the village and Emil follows soon after. Um, <laughs> he's, he's looking a little out of sorts, but he's claiming that shades are coming to attack the village shortly after. Guess what happens? Shades, Shades are coming to attack the village. Shades arrive and attack the village. Oh, snap. Led by this humongous shade called Jack of Hearts, who's kind of a, a smart-mouthed, violent, sadistic type of shade. Because the Shades, mm-hmm. at least some of the Shades can talk to you. Some of them are, are slavering lunatics, but some of them can actually talk to you in an understandable way. Now, most of the time, your first playthrough, the Shades are talking in this language that you can't understand. But second playthrough, you... you kind of hear things from Kaine's perspective. She can understand the language that the Shades are speaking because she has one inside her. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, our goal is to keep the Jack of Hearts from getting to the library in the village because it's believed that the library in the village might contain information relevant to curing the Black Scrawl that's afflicting Yona. So we're desperate to keep Jack of Hearts from getting to the library. So our heroes fight Jack, and then they fall back to the library. Jack actually gets in the library, but Kaine manages to seal him inside the basement. And after this, Nier is stabbed in the back by uh, himself uh, by this being called Shadow Lord. Uh, <laughs> Ooh, mysterious Shadow Lord! Who could this possibly be? 
it's near, but we'll get to that. Uh, <laughs> they don't do a very good job of hiding it. No, they don't. It looks exactly Sh- like it. It does. Like, Sh- Shadow Lord bears a striking resemblance to Nier. Hmm. <laughs> Methinks there may be a connection, forsooth. <laughs> you know. And Shadow Lord is accompanied by his own grimoire called Grimoire Noir, the one we heard about in the legend, who's supposed to destroy the world. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And Grimoire Noir is also the grimoire at the very beginning of the game that our hero doesn't want to interact with, but then has to in order to save Yona from the Shades. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so we've come full circle now, as these games tend to do. Mm-hmm. And in the process of this confrontation, Grimoire Noir has a telepathic conversation with Grimoire of Weiss. Because um, by this point, you found all the sealed verses. Yeah. You know, one boss fight after the you found all the sealed verses. So Grimoire Noir says that now that they found all the sealed verses, they can join together and let loose all the shades upon all the worlds. And it's kind of a cryptic reference, and you're not sure quite what it means. It, it, the way he makes it sound is that the shades are basically going to come to dominate the world and wipe out humankind. That's the way they kind of make it sound. It's not, it's not what he's talking about, as you come to find out later, but that's the way they kind of make it sound at this point. It's like, <laughs> oh, we better not let the seals break, or else the Watchers are going to come and destroy the world. It's a similar thing here. At least it's implied um, at this point in the game. So they can join together and let the shades loose to take over the world, or so it seems, to make a new and perfect world, renovate the world, and in the process destroy everything we know and love. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says that the whole quest to find the sealed verses was masterminded by the Shadow Lord, who's been manipulating things in the shadows the whole time. Mm. Uh oh. Mm, the shadows. Mm. Eventually, Kaine goes on a really vulgar and foul mouthed tirade and eventually calls Grimoire Weiss out of the trance. Because. That's her thing. She's, again, she's A2, basically. Very foul-mouthed and hot-tempered, but ultimately lovable and, you know, relatable. Great character, on the whole. Uh That's just kind of her shtick, just like A2. You come to love A2, and you kind of chuckle at her because she's hot-tempered and (laughs) (laughs) foul-mouthed. So again, think A2. Only maybe slightly more hot-tempered than A2. I find Kaine to be a bit more of a hothead even than A2 was. Uh, Because A2 softens up pretty quick, uh, but Kaine kind of stays hot-tempered for a little longer, I think. Uh, But anyway. And so Shadow Lord uh, eventually wins the confrontation, and he takes Yona with him and leaves to some unknown location. And so Nier's like, no, you took my daughter, you fiend. Bring her back, Anon! But he doesn't, so that's not what he says. Aww. I just figured I'd work on some, <laughs> some quite antiquated verbiage. Mm-hmm. Um, so skip five years later. Yona's still missing. But Nier is wearing a different outfit. By now he's a hardened combat veteran very angry and he's been searching for yona this this whole time and he's got an eye patch he's got an eye patch, got an eye patch. Yeah, I- that's the way you show time has passed yep <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't look like he's really aged at all no but he's got this eye patch good enough now near himself has not aged at all but then he comments to popola how she doesn't appear to have aged at all in the last five years uh, is know, it because they've been on that juicing diet yes it must be yeah, they're on, <laughs> they're juicing and they're on the keto diet. I think. <laughs> uh, so naturally, they're not. Of course, that's a bit of foreshadowing, uh, mentioning mm-hmm. that she has an age. But anyway, so Emil sends a letter indicating that. Well, to kind of back up, the there are more and more shades appearing, and so everybody's the village. You know, things have kind of gone to pot. There's not enough food. People are afraid to go out because of how many shades there are running around, and mm-hmm. so things have gotten a bit darker in the last five years. Okay. Um, and amidst all this darkness and carnage, Emil sends a letter indicating that there might be a cure for Kaine. Because, oh, I, I skipped over something kind of important. Like, while we're fighting Jack of Hearts, 
in the library. You know, we mentioned that Kaine seals him in the basement, but that's behind a, wo- a, a wooden door that Jack of Hearts is going to break through because he's this big, powerful shape. And so to keep him in the basement, what happens is Kaine backs up against the door and asks Emile to petrify her so that she and the door itself will turn to stone and keep Jack of Hearts sealed inside the basement in the library. So Emile is initially reluctant, but then he takes off his blindfold and looks Kaine directly in the eyes. She's backed up against the door, so she turns to stone, and the door itself turns to stone for reasons I don't quite understand. Because <laughs> I guess it makes sense for the game. The game needed it to. And so that stone barrier keeps Jack of Hearts sealed inside the basement, but as a consequence, Kaine is lost to us. She's turned to stone. Uh-huh. So again, she has a penchant for getting wounded or otherwise incapacitated. Uh-huh. Um, and so she carries through on that pension here. Uh, Emil sends a letter, though, indicating that there might be a cure for Kaine. Please come see me. So naturally, that's what we do. After we comment to Popolo that she doesn't seem to have aged, and she just waves it off as kind of a, an awkward compliment. So, <laughs> so once we arrive at the mansion, Emil says that, <laughs> you know, um, talk about recycling devices here. Uh, Emil says there's yet another room in the mansion that might have the information we need to harness all <laughs> magic. <laughs> Oh, we should also point mm-hmm. out that, like, um, going over, like, gimmicks the game does, the yeah. mansion is all static backgrounds, like Resident Evil. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yes. It, yeah. it, it employs a lot of, like, the same camera angle. Yeah, it's, it's like the Resident mansion Evil. is it's just, like, a big meta reference to Resident Evil. Yeah. It is. No, uh-huh. you're absolutely right about yeah. that. I, I kind of glossed over that, but you go into certain rooms and the camera angle changes in peculiar ways that really reminds you of Resident Evil. Yeah. And kind of the whole creepy motif. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The whole thing's a big callback to Resident yeah. Evil. Um, as Resident Evil fans will realize once they play the area. Um, so I, I think it's really good you know, art direction. It, it kind of yeah. gives you a, a bit of a different experience. It kind of breaks the monotony a little bit. So I think it's, it's really a good aspect uh-huh. uh, on the whole. Plus, if you're a Resident Evil fan, you'll get all giddy because, yay, callback to a game I like. You know, gamers eat that stuff up. Um, <laughs> and I say this being one and perfectly susceptible <laughs> to that phenomenon. <laughs> so, but the, so lo and behold, there's yet another room in the library that might have information we need. And lo and behold, Nier has to, you know, escort Emil there once again. Um... And this is the point where we find out some really bizarre stuff about the mansion itself. We found out that in the courtyard, there's a secret entrance to an as-yet-unexplored part of the mansion. Because the mansion itself is a front for a secret research facility that was using the demonic element to experiment on children to develop super weapons to combat the Legion. The two primary test subjects were codenamed number six and number seven. They were siblings, brother and sister. Number six was the sister. Her name was Halua. Number seven was a young boy. His name was Emil. So Emil was one of the children who were experimented on. These two were regarded as the success. Halua, in particular, was regarded as the success. She became this uh, inhuman super weapon. Um, She had the round head, right? The trademark Emil, a round head. And this sort of almost skeletal-looking body. Well, she actually, her body kind of reminds me of the Bloodstarved Beast a little bit. Part of her is kind of flayed open, you know. She looks like a skeleton, yeah. Yeah, basically, yeah. She's emaciated, and part of her is kind of, like, flayed open. Um, so, yeah, Halua became the successful super weapon, blood-starved beast-looking thing. Uh, mm-hmm. Sort of. And, uh, but as a consequence, she went berserk, so they had to contain her inside the facility. And Emil then was given the ability to petrify as a way to kind of keep her in check and keep anyone else from getting yeah. to her. You know, so anyone <laughs> goes inside the mansion... Are they going to get petrified? <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. So it, it, 
it, that was a kind of a security device to kind of keep her sealed away and safe. Um, so naturally, we fight Halua. And once the boss fight is over, Emil kind of fuses with her. And that's when he acquires the trademark round head. Um, uh-huh. the re- and the rest of his body is essentially a skeleton. Yeah, uh, she, um, she like swallows him up, basically. Yeah, and then that's, at that point they fuse together. The yeah. boss fight is you basically trying to kill Halua to get uh, Emil out. Out of her, yeah. But oh, he that, ends, yeah, that's right. yeah, yeah, he ends up as a, an Emil Halua kind of hybrid thing. Like they, they right, fuse yeah, okay. together into the one thing, yeah. Yeah, so she, and yeah, he, yeah. He, he refers to it um, after that as my sister's body. So I think the implication is he's actually inside the, like, Halua skeleton that's just smaller. So yeah, she eat, yeah you're right. You're absolutely right. She eats him, and then we're, we're fighting her to try to get him out. And yeah. in the process, they kind of fuse together in this weird way, or he assumes her body somehow. Yeah. Or, you know, and or he, you know, He's now controlling her, and the body is just shrunk down. And whatever happens, yeah. Uh, Emil takes on this grotesque new form, but uh, Nier accepts him. And in Nier Gestalt, there's this one. There's this wonderful sort of fatherly display of affection as Nier makes it clear that you know, doesn't matter. You're still you. We still accept you. We still love you. Hmm. Yeah. Ka- Kaine well. eventually accepts him too, despite his. Because again, she knows what it's like to be different. Mm-hmm. So em- Emil becomes part of the gang despite his grotesque appearance. So on the one hand, he's really weird looking, but on the other hand, he now has a host of new magical powers. Uh, which will adapt to suit the narrative needs of the game. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah, basically. Like, <laughs> Amir has all these new abilities that we don't yet understand, and so whenever the game needs him to have a new and awesome power, he'll have one. <laughs> He's the opposite of Kaine. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah, yeah. Kaine has all these cool powers, but in cutscenes, she's just randomly knocked out. Yeah, whereas yeah. Emil it does the knocking out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because of his new abilities. Um, so yeah, now that but now that Emil has all these new powers, the first thing he does is to unpetrify Kaine. Um, and of course, naturally, that means Jack of Hearts pops out of the basement. Mm-hmm. He's like all flamboyant about it. Jack is back, baby. Kind of like in uh, So wait, he's been in the basement this entire time? He has. Yeah. He yeah. didn't look for another way out? or Apparently there wasn't one. Apparently that's one fortified basement. How is he still alive? He's a shade. He, he's a shade, yeah. They don't necessarily require... He's basically a ghost. Yeah. Yeah. Was he really bored? I'd be really bored. He probably was, you know. Huh. I would say he was. Being, of course, it, it was a library, so I guess there was a lot to read. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. Okay. Okay. You know, and he and he, he wasn't like a, a lunatic shade. He still had his wits about him, so he, he could read, mm-hmm. presumably. Um, some of the shades are just insane, but some of them are quite calm and sentient. I always like it in, in fantasy and science fiction when someone's, like, locked somewhere for years or possibly centuries, and then you can just pick up the conversation you were having with them. Yeah, it's like they got locked away. <laughs> it's like nothing ever happened. Yeah. <laughs> or, like, you know, you leap forward in time and they've been stuck in the same place for centuries. I remember <laughs> there's specifically an episode of Torchwood where someone was buried underground for 2,000 years and then dug up and they just continued talking. It's like, like it's like like it never happened. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like Servpro, like nothing ever happened. <laughs> Servpro is a cleaning service in the United States, and that's kind of their logo. Like nothing ever happened. Just that sounds very ominous. Yeah, like nothing ever happened. Well, there's a hardware store near me where the the slogan is "lowest prices are just the beginning," and I'm like, of what? <laughs> <laughs> Feels like they should be saying lowest prices are just the beginning, Mister Bond. 
<laughs> no, Mr. Bond, I want you to die. <laughs> oh, but I love James Bond. Yeah, but anyway, there's another thing I could talk about for ages, but obviously we don't have time for that. <laughs> so yeah, we free Kine and she's back and just as hot-tempered and foul-mouthed and lovable as she ever was. Aww. At this point, the ever-helpful Papala tells Nier that the villagers are afraid of Emil and Kaine, who therefore Aww. are not welcome. On hearing this, oh. naturally, Nier gets upset to the point where he wants to strangle Papala, but he refrains himself. So mm-hmm. instead just flies off the handle and storms off. Uh, <laughs> but later he comes back and apologizes for his outburst. And Papala's Aww. and Papala just lets it slide. So then uh, as kind of a consolation prize, Papala tells Nier because so at this point, both Emil and Kaine are kind of sleeping outside, like a couple yeah. of outcasts. You know, so it kind of reinforces the whole outcast. Yeah. This is where she calls them a merry band of freaks. Yeah, yeah, because they're sleeping outside, and 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 I, and I think at this point, Emil and Kaine really start to bond. Yeah, because um, mm-hmm. they're they're the the two freak outcasts, and they really only have each other and Nier to rely on. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, Nier's missing an eye somehow, so I guess he's a little bit of a freak in that respect too. Which, of course, um, that's kind of a th- recurring thing too, because in Drakengard Three, Zero is effectively missing an eye because the flower is popping out of her right eye. So, oh my god. That's kind of a callback to Drakengard 3, at least arguably. You that can. is so freaky. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, the uh, the runes that appear on your skin in the Black Scroll are kind of this celestial alphabet that you see in some of the Drakengard games as mm. well. So that's another, that's another yeah. callback. Um, and the consensus is that that's basically referring to the, the proteins in DNA. Uh, it's like the four letters that recur, like A, D, and A, the A G, C, T. AGCT, yes, yeah. which is kind yeah, of... Yeah, Dr. Um, Peelbeam would know. Yeah, I only know that because of Jurassic Park. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Great movie. Um, but anyway, yeah, no, absolutely. Because yeah, that's all about DNA and cloning and all that good stuff. Mm-hmm. Good science fiction tropes. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, Popola tells, Popola tells Nier that he can find a lead to the Shadow Lord's location... At where else but the Lost Shrine, to which we often resort <laughs> in this game. Yeah. So naturally, the gang goes there. Once we're there, the big robot or the big suit of armor, whatever he is, Gretel shows up because we remember we fought him before at the beginning of the game, and this time he's speaking in strange tongues that we can't understand in the first playthrough, but that we can understand on the second, and it makes us feel really bad for fighting him when we can't understand it because it turns Aww. out he's just he's just trying to protect a bunch of shade children. He's like, they can't defend themselves. Leave them alone. They're my friends. Please stop. But of course, we just, we just mercilessly kill him and all the other shades anyway. Um, uh, on the second playthrough, we feel like total jerks for everything yeah. we're doing. <laughs> I can't <laughs> because, understand. Because <laughs> almost every boss has a sympathetic story. And from a certain point of view, we could be seen as very much the bad guys in what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'll get to, we'll briefly go over that. Uh, <laughs> once we're there, Gretel shows up speaking in strange tongues. We defeat him. But... Of course, he critically wounds Kaine during the fight, because that's just what happens. <laughs> uh, and at this point, the shade inside of her, Tyran, takes control, and we have a rousing boss fight, after which we finally defeat her and suppress the shade. And she's like, oh, I can't hang out with you guys, because I'm going to turn into the shade, and I'm going to kill you, and it's going to be really awkward. Aww. And Emil's like, no, dang it, you're my only friend. We're going to keep doing it as many times as it takes because you're my buddy and you're the only one who understands me. And Because Emil cries a lot. (laughs) (laughs) That was a masterful Um, impression, Nick. (laughs) He's like, you helped me go on despite the fact that I'm an ugly super weapon. (laughs) Aww. 
<laughs> you can't leave us, Kaine. So he convinces her to stay with the group. Okay. And at some point you find a mysterious stone fragment. A not-at-all-common RPG trope. <laughs> mm. And so naturally we take it back to the all-knowing, all-helpful Popola, uh-huh. who happens to know that it's one of five fragments of what is supposed to be the key to the Shadow Lord's castle. Is it one of the five fragments of Manus? Uh, of course. <laughs> I mean, it's the Shadow Lord, Manus is the yeah. father of the Abyss, which is yeah. dark. So, confirmed. I can't oh. think of any other games where the villain is dark, so it's definitely a reference. <laughs> Absolutely. No question. <laughs> Never mind when the games came out. Uh. <laughs> Let's see. So, yeah, so of course we have to find the remaining four. The one we found is called Stone Guardian. Each one has a name. Stone Guardian, Loyal Cerberus, Memory Tree, Sacrifice, and Law of Robotics in no particular order. this point, you can choose to go to the Junk Heap or to the Forest of Myth. If you go to the Junk Heap, you see a flashback in which Jacob and Gideon are salvaging parts. A large metal plate falls on Jacob, crushing him. Gideon accidentally rips off Jacob's arm, trying to pull him out from underneath said metal slab. And this drives him crazy. Um... While this is going on, Gideon encounters a strange robotic life form foreshadowed to near Automata. Uh-huh. And so he comes to blame all of his problems and everyone else's problems on machines, and he vows that he will go crazy and destroy every machine in existence, even though his stock and trade is repairing and building and working with machines. Mm-hmm. So it seems a little inconsistent, which lends credence to the notion that he's a little crazy. And when we see him in the present day, he's actually missing his, I think, his left arm, and it's replaced with a robotic arm. Because I guess he felt guilty that he ripped off Jacob's arm, trying to get him out from underneath the slab, even though it didn't matter because Jacob was dead. So out of guilt, he kind of cut off his own arm, but then yeah. he realized, hey, life is harder without an arm, so he gave himself a robotic arm. <laughs> That's deep. Life is harder without an arm. <laughs> you know. Life's harder with only one arm. <laughs> yeah. But he felt, basically it was, it was guilt, so he cut off his arm, but then got tired of only having one arm and gave himself a robotic arm, even though he hates all machines. Well, he hates all, he hates all machine, I almost said machine life forms, but he hates all living machines, basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so big foreshadow to near Ultimata there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but anyway, so Gideon sends us to destroy some robots to fetch some memory alloy, another ter- term familiar to near Ultimata fans, yep. to upgrade our sword. We do so, but of course Gideon will need some time to perform the upgrade because the narrative needs us to not get the sword right away. It needs us to go do something else first. Uh-huh. So once we return to the village, Papala hands us, the ever-helpful Papala, <laughs> hands us an invitation to the upcoming royal wedding in Facade. As it turns out, our 15-year-old prince, now king, is preparing to marry a 10-year-old girl named Fira, the deformed girl we met when we first went to the village. Uh-huh. The, the, the now king accepted her even after seeing her true disfigured face, which is pretty romantic, I think. Now, the, we get there and there's some deep conversation about the nature of love and romance and marriage, which we can gloss over because it's not sexy or violent. <laughs> Nor relevant to the larger plot. Um, <laughs> the wedding proceeds smoothly until a band of wolves, led by a shade that looks like a wolf, attack the wedding. And the shade immediately attacks and critically wounds Fira, and she dies. Aww. And of course, this makes the king rather upset, and he vows to wipe out the wolves. Because naturally in this game, anytime one member of one species does us wrong, we have to vow to wipe out the entire species, because that's what we do in these games. <laughs> it's just like real life. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. One 
one wolf did one bad thing to me, so now... Actually, it wasn't even a wolf, it was the Shade who actually killed Fira. Oh. So it's, he's not like, I'm going to wipe out all Shades, he's like, I'm going to wipe out all wolves. Now, wolves do accompany the Shade to attack the wedding, so it's not just mm-hmm. the Shade. But Fira dies, the king says, I'm going to wipe out all the wolves, so naturally we agree to help. So we trek out into the desert, and we kill a bunch of wolves, we destroy the wolf shade, and get the loyal Cerberus key fragment. <laughs> and then later on, we learned that the wolf shade was the spirit of a wolf, or was the spirit of a dog whose owner sacrificed himself so that the wolf could continue on in spirit form, and all the master oh. asked in return was that the wolf think about him now and again, which the wolf did until we killed it. Aww. Is this the story of Sif? Uh, sort of. <laughs> Loyal wolf and its master. The master sacrifices oh. itself so that the dog can continue on. It kind of is. Yeah. yeah. Huh. It kind of is. Um, and so the reason that the wolves attacked the wedding was that uh, a, a party of soldiers from the village killed some wolves. So they were naturally upset about this and wanted to retaliate. Hmm. Um, so again, we feel like jerks once we <laughs> learn what's really going on. Hmm. But anyway. And so we get the key fragment and then Gideon sends correspondence. Perfect timing stating that the blade is finished. Because this is not an RPG, after all, so these things don't tend to work out that way all the time. <laughs> I'm kidding, they do. When we, <laughs> when we meet him, he asks us to avenge Jacob against a little shade and his robot. So naturally, we return to the junk heap and fight a giant robot called P-33 and a small shade that's perched atop it, which appears to be giving it orders. But later we learn that they're both sentient, they're fast friends, and we're kind of jerks for coming in and killing them unprovoked. Oh. <laughs> Wow, this game is horrible. <laughs> and their only wish was that they could live together forever as friends. Uh, <laughs> and we come in and just wreck their crap. So, but I think, though, in some of the expanded materials, we find that one of them managed to survive and see the outside world, which was their wish together. Um, so we're not, we're, we are total jerks, but at least one of them managed to survive and get away. Um, but once we win, Gideon, cause Gideon comes and starts pounding the wreckage of P-33 maniacally, vowing to make terrible weapons to destroy all the machines, and we get the Law of Robotics key segment. So he's like, alright, crazy boy, you keep pounding the robot. We're just gonna leave now. <laughs> thanks for the sword, because he gives us a cool new sword. Uh-huh. Like, thanks for the sword, you just keep pounding that corpse and cackling. <laughs> uh, we'll see you later. So then we go to... The Forest of Myth, where we confront Sleeping Beauty and experience three really cool short stories that maybe we can get into some other time. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> they provide a lot of good narrative context and flavor, and one might actually shed some background on Weiss's origins, because basically the grimoires were people who've been trapped inside books. Uh, that's the short of it. Um, but here lately, though, Sleeping Beauty, even though it was created to remember everything, it has been forgetting things. So it feels like it's losing its purpose, so we have to kind of try to help it remember. We find a shade uh, stealing these little yellow crystals that we assume are memories, and so naturally we kill it or try to kill it. <laughs> of course, because that's, that's what our we do. solution to everything. <laughs> yep. yep, that's what we do. Well, do you, do you out- want to go into like how this kind of articulates? Because what happens yeah, is you yeah. fight these bosses like without what Nick is saying, without the the context, <laughs> and then um, you'll Sim will understand this because it's similar to what the game does with the nine S path. Where when you go back and fight them again, you get additional information. That's right. About what's going on. Yeah. And that's when you feel like a jerk. Um, Yeah. yeah. Because in in the second playthrough, which picks up, I think, at the library. Yeah. um, 
you can kind of see things from Kainé's perspective. And as near, you can't understand what the shades are saying. You can't understand their language. But because Kainé is possessed by a shade, she can mm. understand their language. And that is how you learn all this backstory. Okay. Um, and that's when you that's feel like neat. a real jerk. Yeah. yeah. And so that's how you acquire all the backstories. Because Kainé can understand what the shades are saying because she's got the Tyran tyran inside of her. Mm. Um, and so because she's sort of part shade in a way, she has one inside her. She can understand what they're saying. Uh, so that's how you know that, for example, Gretel is saying, leave my friends alone. They're just children. They can't defend themselves. Yeah. Of course, Aww. we don't realize that. So, so we just slaughter them. Because <laughs> <You know? laughs> they, they are just children. They're completely defenseless, yet we slaughter them because they're shades, and that's what we do. We kill Yeah, shades. it reminds me of the uh, the robot village from Nier Automata. Yeah, N- Nier Automata, like, basically does a bunch of Nier over again in a slightly different it, way. It does. Mm-hmm. It, actually, yeah. A lot of the same themes and tropes are present in both games. Um. A lot of the same ones. Yeah. Um, and you'll, you'll wind up feeling very sorry for every boss you, you, you kill. <laughs> you <know? laughs> even the, even Groon, the great big the whale-like robot that comes out and threatens to wreck everything, you feel really sorry for him. But that's skipping way ahead. Um, so yeah, yeah that, that's a really, I think it's a really powerful narrative device, and it's a way to give meaning to the second playthrough when you're kind of doing the same thing you've done before. You know, you're doing different things, but overall the same thing. Um, so anyway, after you sort of solve the problem with the tree, Basically, what happens is the, the shade, the tree, the shade is wasn't you know some memory thief. It was actually either the tree itself or some sort of representation of it, or some shade that infused with it. But once it touches near, it reacts with joy and a little bit of sadness because it's now feeling emotions it's never felt before. And finding near was somehow the last event that was necessary to trigger its termination sequence, and so it shuts down. Mm-hmm. And it's relieved to finally be able to shut down. Mm-hmm. Um, and so once that happens, you get the Tree of Memory key segment. And then you go back to the village, and the ever-helpful Papala introduces a letter purporting to be from the chief of the, the area village. Previously, the area village was really isolated and closed off to us. But now, according to this letter, they want to open up trade and welcome outsiders. So naturally, we go there. And I think area may be Kainé's native village, if I'm not mistaken. Um, Maybe. Yeah, I think. But it, I don't guess it matters. Once we, get th- once we get there, though, we found out that the letter might be a sham, and everybody's <gasps> acting really weird. Uh-oh. Yeah, the letter might be a sham. Everybody's acting strangely. Villagers are turning into shades and attacking you. And, of course, we fight back. We fight back, because we kill shades. Because uh, Nier has vowed to kill all shades, because the Shadow Lord is a shade, and the Shadow Lord took his daughter, therefore all shades are bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's everybody's reasoning in these games. <laughs> uh, of course, we fight back, and of course, once again, Kaine is is critically wounded because that's what happens. Um, now, the village shades that we kill eventually combine into this uber shade called Wendy. <laughs> <laughs> this, this big uber powerful shade, and it's Wendy. Why is it Wendy? I don't know. <laughs> Its name is Wendy. <laughs> this big uber crazy shade called Wendy who puts up a heck of a fight. Um, you know, but you fight it and you know you're having trouble, but then Emil lets loose his living super weapon powers and destroys Wendy after a robust boss fight. But as a consequence, he he, he let go a little bit too much, he loses control, and he essentially nukes the entire village. Oh my god. <laughs> Killing innocent and shade alike. <laughs> Wow. And naturally, Emir, being the sensitive soul he is, is, is somewhat distraught about this. Yeah, so he's crying. And, and now, the way Nier reacts is a bit striking. Uh, 
And Neil's like, I killed everybody. I killed all these innocent people. What have I done? Ah! And Neil's like, but you saved our lives. Oh. <laughs> and it's like, he just killed a village full of mostly innocent people. And you're like, but you saved our lives. <laughs> well, listen, if, if, the, if, if he didn't, you'd have no game to play. So That's right. Yeah. So, and so, so shades of Kaim, the the sort of homicidal maniac, type, psychopath. <laughs> same psychopathic tendencies as our protagonist in. Well, I think like I think what Richard said is spot on. Any protagonist in any RPG is going to have yeah. to be a little psychopathic because yeah. you're killing legions of people. Yeah. yeah, you know, yeah, like through the chaos mechanic, Dishonored tries to force you to acknowledge this too in a different mm-hmm. way. Um, so shades of that, but yeah. Uh, so yeah, Nier's totally cool with it though because he didn't give a crap about anybody in the village anyway. As long as he's still alive, that's all that matters. So, but then of course we get the final key segment called Sacrifice. Get it? Because Nier, because Emil just wiped out the whole village, and now we get the key <laughs> segment. So its name is Sacrifice. Yeah, not, complete coincidence. Um, Obviously, <laughs> not at all meant for narrative flavor. So having fully assembled the key, we return to the Lost Shrine and open the gate to the Shadow Lord's castle. And according to Yoko Taro, we're actually transported way down underground and way back up again so that we're in a completely different place once mm-hmm. we do that. Mm. But anyway, once we arrive at the Shadow Lord's castle, it's not this dark, dank, morbid place that we might think a guy called the Shadow Lord would be inhabiting. It's actually, we actually open up into a, a very nice courtyard. Well, um, he, ha- he had a very good decorator. He did. I mean, the place <laughs> is very bright and cheery and well-maintained. <laughs> I mean, it's a really nice place. <laughs> Like, this is where the Shadow Lord lives? I, ex- I expect to see bats and vampires and darkness. Yeah, and... like a dungeon and skeletons. I expect, you know, Castlevania. <laughs> Not this majestic courtyard. Um, uh-huh. Now, before we go, in another bit of foreshadowing, Papala expresses misgivings. Like, are you really sure you want to do this thing you've been trying to do the whole game? Because I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, well, of course I do. That's what the whole game's been about. So that's what it's been leading up to. If we yeah. didn't go, it'd be rather anticlimactic. Uh-huh. It's like, okay, but are you really sure? <laughs> you know, so she expresses misgiving. Right. So, so that's another bit of foreshadowing. Now, you, mm-hmm. now, once you get to the area, you initially progress by answering a series of questions posed to you by pigeons. Uh-huh. I think they're mechanical pigeons. They talk yeah. to you, and you, have to, and you have to answer three riddles, each of which kind of hints toward the big reveal at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, so once you answer the riddles, you progress. Um, and, and the pigeons are kind of a nice callback to Drakengard Three because at the end of I think Route A, you kind of turn all the disciples that you've acquired into pigeons because that's their original form. Um, so you turn them into pigeons to liberate them from their service as disciples. So that's another callback to the Drakengard franchise, I think. Uh, but anyway, at the end of all this, Papala and Devila show up to oppose mm-hmm. us. They've been helping us all along, but now all of a sudden they oppose us. Uh oh. As it turns out, they're in league with the Shadow Lord. And they call Weiss a traitor because he wasn't willing to join with Grimoire Noir and do whatever it is they wanted to do. So they, naturally, they take his powers. um, Because those powers were loaned to him, Mm quote-unquote. So they leave, and we progress further into the castle, and we fight a couple of boars, one of which looks very much like the armored boar in Dark Souls. Um, They're shades, but they're taking the form of gigantic boars. Uh, We fight and kill one. The second one, called Goose, which of course a wild boar would be named Goose, uh, is mm-hmm. basically unkillable at this point, and he chases us further into the area. 
when all seems lost, somehow a band of soldiers from Facade, led by the king, show up to help us. It's like, wait a minute, we had to go on this big elaborate quest to get in here. How'd you guys get in here? It doesn't matter, it's a video game. Shut up. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) It's like we had to go on this big elaborate quest, and you guys just show up with a a military contingent (laughs) to help us fight this giant boar. Um, So anyway, they... They show up and they distract Goose long enough for the door to shut behind us, and we move on. Later on, we learn that the king actually dies during this fight. Why the heck the king came himself is a mystery to me, but the king himself came with a contingent of soldiers, and I think they all died. Um, Mm -hmm. So they keep Goose busy while we make our way further into the castle where Devola and Papala are. Here's where the big reveal comes. Here we learn that Devola and Papala are (gasps) androids. No! Created to watch over the replicants until they can rejoin their gestalts. Like, what the heck did you just say, Nick? Replicants and gestalts? What the heck are you talking about? Mm -hmm. Well, here's the big reveal. Um, By studying the grimoires, humans found a way to separate their souls from their bodies. Um, The key to that was grimoire noir. And so they mass-produced copies of grimoire noir to enable humans to separate their souls from their bodies. This was a means to preserve the human race. Uh, because basically, the Gestalt is a disembodied human soul, yeah. also known as a shade. So we found out that the shades we've been fighting this whole time are Gestalt's disembodied human souls. And er- basically, every quote-unquote human we character we encounter, with the exception of Devil and Papala, is a replicant. And the replicants oh. are mass-produced cloned bodies that, once, the- once we finally found a way to contain the white chlorination syndrome, well, he- well to back up, Project Gestalt, here's the plan in a nutshell. <laughs> okay, okay, I'll, I'll just, um, you yeah. were talking yeah. about the pigeon questions before. Yes. Okay, the way the pigeon questions foreshadow this is that as you go through the Shadow Lord's Castle, there are these pigeons that you talk to, and they ask you questions. And Nia's response to all of them is, how the fuck am I supposed to know the answer to this? I don't know. Right. Right. The answer is that Grimoire Vice knows it, but it's multiple choice. So what the game does is it just makes you go through multiple choice questions it kind of knows you don't know the answer to until you pick the right one. That's how it does the reveal. So the questions are like, um, what is like, what what went wrong with humanity, which was the white chlorination disease? And then it says, okay, so how will humans survive? And you, you, you have to go through all the answers so you pick the right one, which is by separating their souls from their bodies. That's right. Mm-hmm. And then the one after that is, well, what happens next? And the correct answer is, we have to place each soul in its corresponding shell. That's right. So the, the replicants, the people that you've been playing as the whole game, are the shells. That's right. You're not playing as the original Nier. You're not playing it. And it's not the original Yona. They're re- replicants. Mm-hmm. So that explains they're not aging and stuff, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The. the- the whole operation is called Project Gestalt, and the mm-hmm. essential idea of it is that we're going to separate our souls from our bodies until such a time as we can get a handle on the Legion and the White Chlorination Syndrome. Once that's done, we've got these mass-produced bodies called replicants that we can put mm-hmm. our, into which we can fuse our souls and regain our bodies, right? That mm-hmm. was the idea. Yeah. So we're essentially taking a temporary leave of absence from our bodies until we can get the white chlorination syndrome under control because it had humankind on the brink of extinction and this was kind of a last ditch effort to preserve the human hmm. race something went wrong though no surprise <laughs> is that the replicants themselves started to become self-aware and sentient oh. uh, and the short answer is this meant that the gestalts could not refuse with their human bodies but that's not strictly true 
Um, because the Shadow Lord does cause Yona's Gestalt to fuse with her replicant, even though her replicant is self-aware, but it's not a good solution. It, it doesn't end mm-hmm. well. Uh, it's not viable long-term for a Gestalt to remain inside a replicant that has itself become self-aware. Um, so it, it leads to bad things. Now, when they first started doing this, when they first started separating souls from bodies, the disembodied spirits, the Gestalts, would go insane. Okay. Um, and so... At the beginning, they were looking for one human who could endure the process and not have his, his gestalt go insane. And the code name for this being was the original gestalt, right? Mm-hmm. The OG. Yeah, the OG, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the original gangster uh, gestalt. And so here's how they found the original gestalt. Um, operating you know, under the cover of a charitable organization, I think the Hamlin organization, which was in charge of Project Gestalt, set up these charitable distribution centers. Because food was scarce, people would flock there for food. Mm-hmm. And when the people came there, they would essentially perform the separation on these people, mm-hmm. and they would keep going insane, and the first one who didn't go insane would be the original Gestalt, and that mm-hmm. would later form the basis to refine the separation process to the point where we could do it without the, the shade or the Gestalt going insane. Uh-huh. And so. Nier went to one of these facilities, but he saw what was happening, that okay. these people were being separated from their bodies and going mad, so he got the heck up out of there. Okay. He's like, I don't want none of, th- I don't want none of this. Uh-huh. But in the intro, when he touches Grimoire Noir to gain the power to fight off the Shades and save his daughter, that's when the separation occurred, right? Oh. In the intro. And he does not go insane. Uh-huh. So Nier is the original Gestalt. The Nier you play as for most of the game is his replicant. And the Shadow Lord, the Shadow Lord is Nier's Gestalt. Oh my god, what a plot twist! Dun dun dun. Well, we should point out that, that the Shadow Lord looks exactly like Nier. So exactly. it's not it's not that much of a plot twist. <laughs> well, I, I think, I think we, we actually did, we did yeah. discuss that. Yeah, we yeah. did discuss that, yeah. It's like, <laughs> it bears a striking resemblance to our intrepid protagonist. <laughs> so, and so the reason the Shadow Lord took Yona was because he wanted to put Yona's gestalt inside her body. Oh. Because a lot, one symptom, like, so now that the process can be performed without the gestalts inevitably going insane. Mm-hmm. But some, gest- some gestalts or shades still do go insane. Mm-hmm. Um, and when that happens, the corresponding replicant is afflicted with the black scroll. Mm-hmm. And that's eventually fatal. So. I think the way it went was that the Hamlet organization actually put Yona's gestalt in stasis for a while so that the process wouldn't fully consummate mm-hmm. to await such a time that they could find a cure and put her back in her replicant safely without her going, you know, bat her crazy. Mm-hmm. Of course, that promise was never fulfilled. So the Shadow Lord slash Nier decided to take matters into his own hands. So right. he, he procured Yona's gestalt. He, of course, in the library, he appears and takes her replicant from us. Mm-hmm. And he does actually manage to place her gestalt inside her replicant. But like I said, it doesn't work out well because once she's revived, the Gestalt says, you know what? I can't stay in this body. This belongs to someone else. I don't like it. So she just leaves and sort of disappears into the sunlight. But before that, though, we have a boss fight with Devil and Papala and both uh, wind up dead. Now, it appears as though Emil sacrifices himself to destroy Papala, who's Mm -hmm. angry over her sister's death. But later Mm -hmm. we come to find out that Emir, of course, survives. Okay. Um, so after that, we have the final confrontation with the Shadow Lord, big boss fight, and after a moment's after a moment's hesitation, we destroy the Shadow Lord. And this 
is the event that leads to the final extinction of the human race. Oh, no. When we destroy the Shadow Lord. Because again, every stable gestalt that has been produced is linked to the Shadow Lord because he was the original template for producing a stable gestalt, right? So they're all sort of linked to him. And so now that he's been destroyed, every shade in existence is going to go insane. And The term they use for that in the game is relapse. Mm-hmm. They're going to go insane. And when that, and remember when that happens, the corresponding replicant is afflicted with the Black Scroll. So mm-hmm. every shade is going to relapse, which means every existing replicant is going to get the Black Scroll, which means basically everything is wiped out, except for the androids that have been created. Because mm-hmm. before humankind yeah. sort of did all this, they created a bunch of androids for various reasons, and those androids are the premise, are sort of the establishment of Nero Tomata way on down yeah. the line. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've been producing replicants, gestalts, and androids. And Devil on Papala again are androids. Their purpose was to watch over the replicants. They're, they're not unique. It's like they're the Devil and Papala models, and basically each village has a Devil and a Papala to sort of oversee and take care of the replicants until such a time as the Gestalts can be reunited. But because the replicants are becoming self-aware, that's really never going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but Replicant Nier made sure of it when he destroyed the Shadow Lord, because now all the Gestalts are going to relapse, all the replicants are going to come down with the Black Scrawl, so Project Gestalt is a final and utter failure. Aww. So the human race is is done hmm. at this point. Totally extinct. Mm-hmm. Which is a big reveal in Nier Automata because it's inconsistent with the premise that humans are hiding on the moon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it but, wasn't a big reveal to me. I knew they were lying to me. Right. If you played Nier, you know that's a false No, I knew premise. without playing Nier. Well, that's just because you're the, the best yeah. in the world at predicting content. Thank so. you. It's nice to be yeah. appreciated, unlike with Richard. <laughs> and so that's... And basically, I'm not sure you need to know much after that to really understand the foundation for Nero Automata, because this explains why the human race is extinct. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's some other stuff, like you, you play through again from the library, and you see things from Kaine's perspective. And that's why we feel guilty about everything we've done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, um, like I said, that's the equivalent of the 9S playthrough. Exactly, that's exactly what it is. Yeah, well, because in, in the 9S one does it by, like, you hack into things and you learn about them. With Kaine, she can just understand shades. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And 9S, because he can hack the machines, is able to empathize with him. And that's another mm-hmm. device to reveal some more backstory that we yeah. didn't get as, as 2B. Yeah. I see 9S as the most important character in that game. 2B is the fan favorite, but really it kind yeah. of all centers around 9S. No, we, we, you... we stand for 9S. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he prefers to be called 9s. 9s, that's right. You can just call me 9s, and 2B is all 9S will suffice. Yeah. <laughs> Emo- emotions are prohibited. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Of course, that's a front, because she actually cares deeply about 9S, even though she kills him over and over again. But that's, yeah. that's, that's for another day. Mm-hmm. Um, but, of course, there are different endings. You know, that's, what we just talked about is ending A. And uh-huh. at the end of that, you know, Shadow Lord and Yonos Gestalts are reunited in, in what appears to be some sort of heavenly afterlife. Um, and it's either at the end of this one or maybe after Route B. Again, we see things from a different perspective, and we learn that Emil is alive in the desert somewhere. He's just rolling around. He's just the head now. He doesn't have his body <laughs> Yeah, the, the body blows off, and he's just the head. Aww. Yeah, rolling yeah. around. And that's how we see him later on in Nier Automata. In Automata or, at least, uh-huh. yeah. or at least a clone of him, but that's that's a different story. Yeah, it's like, yeah. <laughs> but mm-hmm. to sort of to sort of complete the lead into Nier Automata, I guess we kinda have to talk a little bit about the alien invasion. Um sometime okay. after sometime after the final failure of Project Gestalt, aliens invade the planet in absolutely overwhelming force. Primarily by way of these machine life forms. Uh they're these sort of sentient machines that you are essentially the entire military apparatus of the invading alien force. Mm-hmm. Emil 
vows to fight against the aliens. So he produces, like, what, 85 million clones of himself to fight yeah. the aliens? Yeah. <laughs> Intense. Uh, but now, despite that, and despite the efforts of the androids, the machines still wind up essentially taking over the Earth, and uh-huh. yeah. the androids have to build a, ba- a satellite base orbiting the Earth from which to conduct their operations, and thus begins the eons-long war with the machines mm-hmm. to reassert dominance over the Earth. And that's the basic premise for Nier Automata. So, it all stems from this alien invasion that takes place well after the events of Nier. Should we talk about how, like, Nier himself is erased from history? Oh, that's right. That Yeah, that's, that's, um... That's important, yes. Yeah. Okay, like, so, Nier, again, has a bunch of different endings. Yep. And I the, think this is ending C, right? Where yeah, this is like, it. yeah, um, basically, if you go through the game and do a bunch of pointless bullshit, you <laughs> unlock the, you basically have to platinum the game. You have to get 100% of everything. That unlocks an option at the end where um, Kaine is is dying or dead. I can't remember exactly what. And you you are near and there's a Grimoire Vice is like, hey, I just discovered a a plot device where like Yona and Yona and Kaine can survive, but you will be erased from history. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's what you have the option to kill her and set her free from. Yeah. Tyran, or she you asks can you to kill her. Yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's another option: you can sacrifice yourself and cure her. But as a consequence, Nier is completely erased from existence, as is your save file. Yeah, it's the same as ending E in um, in Automata. So you have to you watch your save file get deleted. Yep. Yeah. I mean, Simil- it, it, yeah. it's not it's not a test. It's not a joke. Your yeah. save file is deleted. <laughs> and this is why in Automata there's no direct references to Nier himself because he never existed. Yeah, at most you get cryptic references to the man. Yeah, you get yeah, the, the man world. or like my friend or something. But yeah, yeah, because Nier was sort of era- there was. I guess the canon is that Nier chose to erase himself from existence to save Kaine. Yeah, and then uh, that's you know, and that's what explains that's why you never see the name Nier at all. Mm. You see unending callbacks to Nier, mm-hmm. but the name Nier is not mentioned because he's been erased from existence. There's just these vague references mm-hmm. to him. I think in one of the short stories, the party is somehow reunited with him, even though he's been erased from existence, but that's, yeah. that's another matter. Because <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, there's a short story where somehow the, the tree of memory resurges itself, and it wants to essentially erase all the replicants' memories or something, and Kaine and Emil band together to stop that, and in the process, they somehow come across Nier, even though he's been erased from existence. Mm-hmm. So it's really weird. Um, but yeah, then the alien invasion happens, and Emil makes all these clones of himself. But most of them are lost to the war, unfortunately. And so Emil's sort of... One of the clones of Emil is sort of running around, and that's the Emil we encounter in Nier Automata. It's one of the clones. It's not the original Emil, I don't think. Because you ask, you know, what happens? To, what's happened to the original Emil, and he says, I don't know. So that could be the original Emil, but it may yeah. not be, because as a consequence of Emil replicating himself so many times, his memories are sort of lost in the process. And so on one of the side quests in Nier Automata, you sort of help him recover some of his memories by finding these lunar tears that are scattered about the world. Uh, which is kind of cool. Uh, very sentimental. Of course, I platinumed the game, so naturally I did that. And I chose to erase my save file in ending E before I platinumed the game, so naturally I did that twice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute, I should have waited to do this until after I got the platinum. Because yeah. now I've got to go through ending E again. Which <laughs> <laughs> is the most hellish bullet hell game ever created, but that's that's a topic for another day, I guess. 
But yeah, so we've we've got that. Nier's been erased from existence, and the aliens invade, and Emil unsuccessfully creates 85 million clones of himself to fight them, and they still wind up taking over the Earth and the remaining androids. Some androids remain on the surface of the Earth to fight the machines. Other androids form an elite unit called Dorha, operating out of an orbiting base to fight the machines, and that's the basic premise for Nier Automata. Yay! <laughs> we got there. <laughs> Phew, I hope that made sense because I feel like I went really fast and glossed over a lot. Well, that was two <laughs> hours almost on the dot. So, oh heck yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I guess next time we can actually go through Near Automata. <laughs> yeah. Yay! Finally, we're doing Near. Some people are going to be so happy. But yeah, this <laughs> is a everything you don't need to know to understand Near Automata. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because people have been asking us to cover Nier, so there we go. We did, shoot. Right, well, I, like I said, I hope that made sense, because I, when I was preparing for this, I honestly felt like I was studying for a law exam. <laughs> there's, there's so much to it. It's like I, I, I would be up to like three in the morning, my head spinning with all the legal knowledge, you know, the night before an exam. And I, 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 this felt this way. Because <laughs> as Richard knows, there's a lot to it. Yeah. Yeah, this podcast is much more intense than law school. Absolutely. And we, we didn't even get into all the branching multiverses and alternate timelines and stuff. <laughs> well, finally, Richard can go to sleep. Richard, do the outro. That was uh, Dragon Guard and Dragon Guard 3 and Near Gestalt and Near Replicant. <laughs> yep. And we hope you were able to follow it. <laughs> yep. Statistically, most of you who've played Neurotomata haven't played these. <laughs> and they're not really relevant to Automata. But <laughs> stick around because we'll do Automata next time. Yes, we will. Yeah. Everything you don't need to know. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Nick. Um, where can people find you on social media? Oh, shoot. Yeah. I have a, a Twitter under Cinder Thief. Uh, a Twitch under Cinder Thief and a YouTube channel under that same name. Cinder is with a Y. Yep, Cinder is yeah. with a Y because yeah. I, I was trying to be cool and didn't realize that that's the name of one of the characters in the Spiro, the Spyro franchise. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know. Yeah. You can just say you predicted Spyro uh, franchise retroactively. I retroactively predicted it, yes. Yeah. Because we have a talent for that. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, yeah. We, so we, we do we do streaming and gameplay mm-hmm. videos and stuff like that. And I'm trying to think of some original stuff to do, like in terms of lore or maybe work in some kind of legal angle. But I haven't mm-hmm. quite decided what to do in that regard yet. You could do Ace Attorney. Mm-hmm. Ace Attorney. <laughs> Heck yeah, I could do the lore on Ace Attorney. That'd be perfect. Yeah. <laughs> this is nothing like the actual practice of law. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, that would be awesome. Yeah, Phoenix Wright, lore confirmed. <laughs> Phoenix Wright is Lawrence uh, but anyway <laughs> well thank you so much well, and, thank you so much for having me this was a yeah. lot of fun thank you Richie thank you and uh, we'll see each other next time yep we certainly will Bye-bye. bye thanks guys <laughs> <laughs>